Welcome to the show, everybody. Um, I am your host for today, Terrence, obviously. Uh, joined by uh, two friends of the show. Um, we've got Dimitri from Subliminal Jihad, one of my favorite shows, as well as Mr. Jimmy Fallon Gong from Program to Chill. How's it going, guys? Pretty good. Hey. Pumped to be here. Good, good. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I know that uh, I've done a, quite a bit of prep for this episode. Um, it's like when you're talking pension, it's like you pull one thread and it's like you pull 2,000 others, you know, and you just keep going. But like really the place where I started for this episode was sort of obsessively watching multiple hours of there's a really great youtube channel called enhanced wtc videos and it's got like all the primo cuts every okay. single video recording of 9-11 of the world trade centers <laughs> that's amazing that's um, amazing I, i'm glad there's a resource like that, that out there yeah it's a it's a great resource i mean it's got like um because you know one of the great hesitate to use the word great we'll get into it one of the interesting things about 9-11 is that it occurred right at this cusp right before everybody had a video recorder in their pocket but people were still recording things quite often mm -hmm. um, that will be a theme in the book that we're going to talk about today um, but in these videos on this YouTube page you've got people filming it from their windows filming it from across the river filming it from just various angles. And one of the, honestly, like, one of the craziest things, um, one of the craziest videos in the catalog is one, I think it was the, was it the South Tower that fell first? I, I always it get it mixed up. It's horrible. The North Tower was hit first. I think it, it might have collapsed first. I think I think it was opposite. I think the North okay. Tower was hit first and then collapsed second. South Tower was hit second and collapsed first. There is a insane video on there of people standing pretty close to it and as this thing starts falling, you kind of get this um you can feel it through the video camera. This this collective just like holy shit, this thing's coming down and like you can feel the adrenaline and the fear in the video it's mm. i mean it's just one of the craziest things i've ever seen mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah I, w I was going back and watching a few of those over the last few weeks because you know the big anniversary is coming up um right there was one i don't know if you saw it of like the nyu girls in their dorm and they're like kind yes. of getting drunk in the morning and they're like laughing like woo hi mom and then they turn around and like the building's <laughs> collapsing and she just shrieks <laughs> Like that was a, that was a memorable one, and I was actually looking up. I I forgot. It's interesting you mentioned like not everybody had phones yet because I guess the the hitting of the first the first plane hitting was only I think captured by two people, and it was like a Czech immigrant who I think was on the BQE and just like randomly filming, and he didn't even realize he caught it for the first one, right. but then he caught the second one, and then there was like I think some like. NYU film graduates were making a documentary about a uh, like a fire station downtown and they were like yeah. embedded with a yeah like a fire brigade that oh, that yeah. so they happened to be filming when they heard this sound overhead 
so i mean i mean we'll we'll definitely get into uh, so many aspects of like paranoia around it but um it still was in that early era where yeah to think there were only two angles of the first plane a lot of people caught the second one you know from video cameras and stuff um right but, yeah it's still like a relatively small uh, amount of sources to work with yeah it is i'm i've seen that video that you were talking about the um you know the the frat girls or they're like partying in their room and they look up <laughs> um there was there's an also there's also another good one on enhanced wtc videos that's like two people that look like they just finished they sound like they just finished having sex and they're sitting there and they're watching it and one of them's like it, like they're watching it while right as the second plane hits and one of them's like i'm getting the fuck out of here i'm getting my clothes on i'm getting the fuck out of here and the, and the guy is like, the guy's like, no, come, let's take a shower. Like, he's not treating, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just an interesting kind of like piecing all this together. You kind of see how this was an event that was, you know, embedded into people's lives. Um, and I think that that is kind of what um, maybe we'll be talking a little bit about today. So, yeah. So, like, without further ado, the reason we're talking about this um, isn't just that the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up, although that is the kind of big impetus for this. Um, the, the big reason is because I wanted to talk about a sort of specific rendering of this event. Um, one that I think, is, I think is a pretty unique take on it. It's a pretty unique perspective on it, um, a, 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 an interesting angle. There's a lot of writers that have tried to tackle 9-11, like there was the Don DeLillo book, Falling Man, um, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, a lot of, I think maybe even Jonathan Letham may, may have written a book about it. Yeah, um, there's a novel called Atta, I think, I want to see about like Jarrett Kobeck, um, right. which I have, but I never read. But yeah, yeah, there have been a few. Yeah, it, so a lot of these novels, especially like Don DeLillo's kind of gets in, you know, it, he kind of tries to get into 9-11 as like a mediated event. Um, but the the book that we're going to be talking about today um, kind of, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's different from all of those. It's a kind of historical document. It kind of almost treats it as historical fiction in a way. Um, it, it, it is also at the same time kind of a hard-boiled detective uh, book that happens at the time as well. Um, and so, yeah, the book I'm talking about is Bleeding Edge by Thomas Pynchon. Um, it is his most recent book, and hope or I hope it won't be, but it may be wind up being his last book. Um, he's getting pretty pretty up there in his years, so who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but if it is his last book, I think it is kind of a fitting in to his um, to his kind of catalog of work, especially like we'll get into it, but like some of the messages he's trying to like convey towards the end of the book are um it kind of feels like he's speaking to us as sort of an elder kind of saying like i don't i don't know yeah it's interesting because my understanding i and correct me if i'm wrong but i think thomas pynchon lives in new york city and i believe he was yeah. living there you know through the events of 9-11 so he was yeah he was yeah i think he lives in the upper west side where maxine yeah. the main character lives hmm. right he does um yeah, and so you can tell that this was an event that, you know, kind of rattled him in a way. I mean, obviously, but you can tell that this event means a lot to him and that he himself is trying to understand. 
Um, one of the ways that he tries to understand it is th by coupling it with something else that was happening in the economy and political economy at the time, which was the dot-com bubble mm -hmm. and the collapse of that bubble. And like I said a minute ago, I think this is an interesting take because like, we don't really think of those two events as um, connected. We don't think of them in tandem or, or as like even maybe historically um, contemporary. And, and I don't really know why that is the case. Maybe it is because we live in the tech you know, world that these people envisioned. And so we, we don't really think of it as um, being something that ended. Um, and also, maybe that dot-com collapse has been eclipsed by the big one in 2008 as well. But it, it is an interesting event that has not received a lot of maybe uh, critical attention. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think maybe it, it's very weird because... Uh, the first dot-com boom was so heavily tied up in like the Y2K hysteria, which had all of these apocalyptic, like right. fin de cicla, like dimensions to it that didn't pan out. And then, you know, basically right after, you know, I think in April 2000, it all collapsed. And then in 2001, like the real disaster kind of showed up, but we still don't attach them. Maybe that's also because the dot-com boom is so heavily identified with Silicon Valley and the West Coast that we don't think about the impact that it was having in the heart of the financial system and in downtown Manhattan uh, in that era. And so I think it's really interesting that he draws attention to basically these two currents kind of going on simultaneously. Yeah, and like I think a lot of people uh, don't even know that much about Silicon Alley in the first place, which is like right. the New York sector of the uh, tech industry. And I feel like all the reporting and like even the business press or popular histories of the first tech boom are all deeply warped and not showing yeah. the real picture of what was going on with these companies Definitely. and the chicanery. I mean, a lot of people know, or there's probably the perception that a lot of the companies were stupid and like didn't really do anything, but it was a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that really jumped out at me and you know, I read this book over the last like five days when you guys uh, told me you're doing an episode on it, which I really appreciate it. Cause it's been sitting on my desk forever and I'd, I'd seen people talk about it like on Twitter and was kind of aware, okay, there's an internet -y dimension, but um, I don't know if you guys heard like one of the earliest episodes we did on Subliminal Jihad was about Josh Harris and the documentary right. about him, We Live in Public, which I think came out in like 2010. And I that just um, that's something I saw when it came out and thought it was interesting. But in 2020, I went back and watched it when the pandemic began and it hit so different. It was so creepily prescient of the world that we ended up kind of living in, like on lockdown in our little kind of pods with our screens all like interacting with each other because he set up this whole art installation around Y2K. And that that's like literally what he did. And, uh, you know, it kind of, it, it turned into a kind of like, you know, orgiastic bedlam, but really, really a kind of dystopian uh, thing that, that had this really bizarre, like techno-fascist undercurrent to it that he was kind of like both warning people about, but also kind of getting off on. And so, right. the, like that, he's kind of the most interesting window, I think, into that Silicon Alley culture. You know, he ran this company called Pseudo, which... Um, which, you know, kind of pre, you know, it, it, uh, 
you know, it, it existed before like video streaming was really a thing. And so he didn't like make money off of it, but it was kind of very culturally influential in the moment. And I think even in a lot of the kind of press coverage of Josh Harris, there is a kind of tendency to be like, what a wacky guy. Like, what a right. dumb, wacky, crazy. It was so easy to make money. You know, you sent me that video, what was it, like Razorfish? Of like, what do Razor you guys fish, actually do? Yeah. And it's like, we recontextualize <laughs> outcomes for businesses. And it's like, yeah, but what do you do? You know, and it's like, there definitely is a, a amount of like gr- grifting, I, I think, going on to that yeah. kind of culture. But also, there's things that I noticed researching Josh Harris that are maybe a little more Pynchon-esque and like darker. Like his dad was a career yes. CIA officer that served in Ethiopia and that he had like a CIA psychiatrist as it shows in the documentary. <clears throat> I think Harold Kaufman was his name that was like advising them on how to do like kind of very MK ultra ish kind of like, like, or even yes. you could say enhanced interrogations, like prefiguring the war on terror. And um, I, I mean, if you want to, I should also say he also has a connection to 9-11, which I feel like Thomas Pynchon has to be like somewhat, I, I would put at yes. least even odds that he's aware of because he was involved in this Austrian art collective called Gelatin that apparently rented a space in the World Trade Center in 2000 and took out a pane of glass and built a kind of inward uh, like balcony. Um, and then according to various rumors and legends, either Josh Harris rented a penthouse at the Millennium Hotel and filmed from there, like watching this stunt at like three in the morning, or he rented a helicopter and flew around and filmed it. Um, but that happened like a year before 9-11. And then afterwards, he claims he started getting harassed by the FBI, who were wanting to know what was up with this like art group and what were you up to? Right. And he like went on the run. He went off to Ethiopia where his CIA dad, you know, used to work. So it's like he, and, and of course, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I think uh, that it seems like the main antagonist in this novel, Gabriel Ice, seems to be heavily drawn from the personality of Josh Harris, even up to the point of he has these shady government kind of connections that like the, the kind of goofy, I'm, I'm lovey the clown kind of bullshit yeah. is almost masking a much more interesting kind of relationship between like the national security apparatus and all of these like darker subterranean things. So yeah. Yeah, so that, I'm the, I'm very excited basically is what I'm saying. The internet's like this new human experience. At first everybody's going to like it, but there will be a fundamental change in the human condition. One day we're all going to wake up and realize that we're just servants. It's captured us. It was genius because nobody had done it yet. He was saying this is the way it's going to be. And he was right. I mean, he was right. He was selling companies for a couple million dollars. Well, we were all a bunch of kids getting paid 10 bucks an hour to try and figure out HTML. Josh was one of these incredible new idols everybody suddenly wanted to be. I'm in a race to take CBS out of business. He was always trying to advance the inevitable. This is going to happen. Let's try it now. Uh, it seems like a lot of the themes Pynchon is working with here are a lot of the themes present in that documentary. And um, and I will say that it, there is, and I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but there's a quote from Gabriel Ice to where he says something of the effect of, like, there's no scenario here in which I die. Yeah. I don't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Josh Harris actually says something almost identical when he's in, when they're 
right about to get raided by the NYPD at the quiet we live in public thing, he says something like, I won't get caught. There's no scenario where I where I get caught. Or something I, I believe like, he says, I won't get caught. I, like, I've, I've spoken with the NYPD, and I'm convinced that I will not get caught before it is my time. I think that's, he says, yeah, yeah. before it is my time. Yeah, before it is my that's, time. That's... That was the thing where I was like, dude, there is there. Pynchon has to be aware of this, you know. It seems. Yeah, and he name drops it once in the novel, right? He does. Yeah, at one of the parties, he says like, he says uh, something of the effect of like, Gabriel Ice seems like he was in a a retro pissing contest with Josh, the parties of Josh Harris (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, no. um, So yeah, that's why I wanted I wanted to um, to kind of tease some of those things out and to kind of throw them in the blender with 9-11 because it seems like in in this you know before we get into the plot of this book um, we can talk a little I want to talk a little bit about Pynchon I'm sure people are probably aware of him Um, but just in case you know you aren't like he is a, a, a novelist he's a writer who is kind of like you know renowned for his like aversion to uh media really um he wrote something in the 80s I thought was kind of interesting for the New York Times called Is It Okay to Be a Luddite? Have either of you re- read that? Yeah. I haven't actually. What does he yeah. say in that? Um, I mean, basically, it's interesting. He is basically kind of saying, yeah, it's okay to be a Luddite. But more than that, he's saying that one, like, one of the tools in the Luddite's toolkit is um, writing. And the exploration, using fiction to explore this act of what he calls denying the machine. So he call, so he kind of calls Mary Shelley and you know Frankenstein like w- one of the first. Uh, you know he he talks about it as a gothic novel, but he also sort of claims it as like sort of the Luddite tradition. Um, and so I think, th- mm. and like that is kind of something <coughs> else that is pertinent to this book, because I think at one point one of the characters, Heidi, says something like 9-11 killed fictional representation. Um, you know, mm. it is now, uh, that's why there's so much reality TV now. Like, there can yeah. be no fiction anymore. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one, one thing I liked from that essay, too, was that, I mean, I think in the popular conception, if anybody knows anything about Luddites, it's just maybe they think Unabomber, and then they think, like, maybe people who smashed up machines and they're just anti-technology, doing air right. quotes, anti but. What Pynchon does in the essay is he links it to actual specific political struggles that these workers were engaged in. Right. They were basically doing like sort of like a strike and they were trying to preserve their working conditions. And it was in this whole context where they were getting squeezed and squeezed. So it's not so much like a knee jerk anti-technology position as like a very specific thing. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like in a broader sense, that's what Pynchon is about in general, I think. For sure. Pynchon is a, in my opinion, I mean, there, there is a reading of Pynchon that uh, there are several different reading of readings of Pynchon's, I guess. I did see someone say online, like, is Pynchon an op? Which is possible. I mean, it, 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 he definitely, tra- you know, sort of s- traveled around in some of the circles. He's from an old blue-blooded American family. He is. He's a um, high wasp, basically. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Ivy League, Cornell, you know. Right. Navy Cornell, veteran. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it even worked in the defense industry for Boeing mm-hmm. at one point. So, I mean, it's, um, it is entirely possible. Um, 
But I, I don't, you know, and I could be wrong. And he, maybe he is, and maybe this whole exercise is useless. But it seems to me, reading his body of work, I've not read all of his books, I've read, but I've read all of them except Vineland and Against the Day. It mm-hmm. seems to me that throughout all of his books, there is a, a recurrent theme um, of political struggle and in of trying to make sense of the world and in a way that can channel that into something that could change it. It seems like he is very preoccupied with, you know, and if you're going to read any other book with Bleeding Edge, it has to be Inherent Vice. It, I was just telling Jimmy right before you got on, Dimitri, that like it seems like these two books you have to read them in tandem mm-hmm. like inherent vice begins the cycle that kind of comes to you know conclusion in bleeding edge definitely structurally very similar to they are yes. <clears throat> yeah even the kind of denouement at the end like very yeah. a lot of a similarity mm-hmm. but it's like hey if it, if if it ain't broke don't you know don't fix it yeah. like right. i, I right, feel like right. he really found his stride i know the new york times review which is very like praising with a lot of like erms like basically you know worked in was like it is so frustrating that thomas pynchon has not developed a late style but i suppose we can forgive him and it's like okay like, yeah you know. they <laughs> called bleeding edge i think pynchon light i think i saw wow it's so ridiculous. okay mm-hmm. yeah i mean well yeah i think sometimes the way he's been able to get through the literary establishment and i guess i'll say up front i'm sympathetic to the idea that he's not an op that he is somebody mm-hmm. from the inside that is using literature as almost a kind of cryptography to yeah. get out a certain message in a way where he can't just come out and say like what he's thinking, but it's really more of like a method of investigation and like coming to terms with like his place in this world and the reality of it and the forces that the kind of invisible forces that are running it that I think runs through almost like every single novel that he's written. Like if you go back to, yeah. I, I think the earliest one I've read is the crying of lot 49, which is also a good, I think companion piece to this. Cause it's got a kind For of sure. similar fem- female protagonist. It takes place in like orange County and it's pretty short and like a pretty, I would always recommend it maybe for like a first pension book that or inherent vice. Yeah. I think are the maybe yeah. the most accessible, but you you get things in that in like 1965 talking about like defense contractors, like weird MK Ultra scientists that are actually right. Nazi war criminals, like real estate scams and like and right wing vigilance groups and like all these other things that and things going back to like European secret societies like Tristero and stuff right. like that, and you realize like he has the same obsessions, and he was calling out things like years before they even entered like the countercultural mainstream, much less like the main mainstream. So I get the sense that like he was an observant person that saw some things happening, like maybe particularly when he moved out to California in like the mid '60s, and he was in Manhattan Beach working for yeah, what was it, Boeing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And hanging out with kind of beats and hippies and stuff. Like he he was able to call out like the susness of like the Tim Leary counterculture kind of almost literally before anybody else and he's just like a novelist. Right. So I I take a lot of like uh value and, and like encouragement from his approach to like these topics and his like relentless fixation on them and kind of telling this like meta narrative mystery full of clues. Like I I don't I think a lot of times he gets like 
pegged as being like, oh, he's so obtuse and like mysterious and right. whimsical that he's just having fun with all of this stuff. And just, you know, I think it's a way that like people on the Upper West Side can kind of reconcile themselves with enjoying his novels without feeling like he's attacking them or something. Like he's saying something right. un- ontologically uncomfortable, you know? But I think he is kind of saying something ontologically uncomfortable in his own way. Yeah, like, when I was a teenager, I got into Pinchon from the, like, straight literary side. None of the political stuff. And I read, like, most of his novels from that perspective. And then as I got into more of the political analysis, more of the conspiracies, it's like, I didn't, like, Pinchon grew with me. And, like, I was realizing he was talking about it the whole time. And so you can do a completely like apolitical reading of Pinchon and have a good time. It's just, you will also miss so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed that Jimmy, you posted the other day, like David Foster Wallace's like reading of gravity's rainbow, which I thought was fascinating because Gra- David Foster Wallace is not a political writer. Mm-hmm. He never was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just, it's just weird to me to think people reading him from, an angle of pure aesthetics or something. You know what I mean? It's, it's like he, he seems like a very political... Um, he has a political agenda he's trying to get across. I think that unserious people or people from you know the upper classes can choose to ignore Pynchon's, uh, those dimensions of Pynchon. But like David Foster Wallace, his take basically on Pynchon, and I'm summarizing, but basically he said that Thomas Pynchon was responding to solipsism through paranoia and was therefore basically creating paranoia and that it was a sort of satanic transcendence and that David Foster Wallace was no longer interested in it and he was trying to do like an angelic transcendence, which is like... Sincerity, the the new sincerity. The new sincerity, right. And it's one of the most spectacular examples of projection I've ever seen. That's what (laughs) David Foster Wallace is doing. (laughs) Thomas Pynchon is deadly serious in all of his joking. He's deadly serious about who's committed the crimes in this country and who deserves, you know, justice. Yeah, Uh absolutely. And, you know, I guess that's, I mean, even the, the kind of the Gen X affect... I think he kind of parodies very skillfully in this novel. And I guess David Foster Wallace wasn't with us long enough to, to read Bleeding Edge. I don't I think he had died by the time right. it came out. But that seems so typical of that kind of like literary pose that was popular in like the nineties and the two thousands that I don't know. That like just psychologizing, like psychopathologizing like mm-hmm. everything that a writer um, I don't know. Someone in my comments uh, compared David Foster Wallace to Jordan Peterson, actually, and like I don't think that it's actually that crazy because this. Yeah, it's not a leap. Like, I honestly think I was just going to ask when you guys were talking about him. I was like, I was, I wanted to blurt out like, if he was alive today, you think he'd be like going on Joe Rogan and like being funded by like have like a Peter Thiel podcast or something like and talk about cancel well, culture all yeah. the time. Yeah, Infinite Jest is just literally like an, a, a thousand word propaganda piece for 12 step programs, which like 12 step programs are what they are. I mean, I've had a very love hate relationship with them, but it's just, I mean, there's a lot of fucking problems with them. Yeah. And it's like, I just don't understand the point. I don't know. It's just a weird, non ideological position to take. You know what I mean? Like, he points out 
individualism and consumerism and addiction and all these things and then in the end it's just like it, well get help it, through 12 through jordan peterson type shit yeah like, clean your makes, room it makes yeah. sense for the 90s it makes sense for gen x end of history types it's just that's wrong <laughs> history right, didn't right. end and everything is political that's why thomas pynchon who by the way was a beatnik he went through one of the first waves of this like ironic posturing that came back in the 90s right. mm -hmm. like he saw it before so yeah you're absolutely right congratulations hippie scum welcome to a world of inconvenience so yeah that actually teased this up pretty nicely because um there are so, like we were saying, there are some fixations that um, Pynchon kind of hones in on. I think that, like, a narrative thing that he likes to do a lot is he, he likes to dial in on a sort of... I hate, the, I hate this word because it's in common use right now, but I don't have any other way to describe it. A kind of, like, liminal space mm. in historical, um, you know, in a historical time. Um, in, in Inherent Vice, it was the kind of winding down of the counterculture in the 60s, like b before the rise of, um, you know, networked computers, before the neoliberal turn, this kind of interregnum between then. Um, he does it in Gravity's Rainbow, which I think is fascinating because, like, how many books in the American canon do you see written about not World War II, but the period right after World War II. It's just yeah. fast, you know, like, Not very but many. before the Marshall Plan, <laughs> but after the war ended, but before the Marshall Plan, this kind of weird interregnum. Um, he does it with Mason and Dixon, which is my, it, personally my favorite, um, you know, it's, it's again, he doesn't, he does, he's not interested in what happens after the the revolution in 1776 but like what was going on in the colonies before then in the mapping out of the states mm -hmm. and um, uh, against the day is like basically the end of the old west right where mm. struggles were still happening but the expansion like people were pretty much out in the old west and then like what do they do right around getting there basically mm -hmm. mm. um and in bleeding edge that period is um, right after the collapse of the dot-com bubble, but before 9-11, this very strange, you know, you've got about a year and a half, a year's worth of time there. It's just a very interesting period. Um, and I think that something that's even more interesting about this, um, and it seems like this might be kind of what he's getting towards, and I guess we can dig into it a little bit more once we start talking about the plot, but it definitely feels like maybe kind of what he's saying is like um, and why he focuses so much on like Silicon Alley, Flatiron District of Manhattan at this time is that this was the kind of like last, um, I don't know, uh, it was the history had ended. The Soviet Union had fallen. America was ascendant. And if there was any better uh, instantiation of that, manifestation of that, it was the tech industry and innovation. And it just fell apart. It completely crashed. I mean, you had all, all these, you know, pets.com, <laughs> fucking pseudo, yeah. uh, you know, like the DIN network, which oh, you guys yeah. have talked about also on your show. Also very similar I mean, like, to pseudo and maybe exactly. Gabriel Ice in a certain way. Right. Yes, there does seem to be some parallels there too. But it was this like, it was this realization, like this is all 
nothing. It's all just hot air. So what has to happen? What has to happen from a narrative point of view? Well, if if this narrative we, we tell ourselves about America isn't true, that we can't lead the world in innovation and that this whole tech thing is just hot air, well, then we need to blow it all to pixels, as Maxine says at the end of this book, and rebuild it on new terms, which is, you know, fascist, re uh, repurpose all of the tools of the dot-com tech industry into surveillance, um, use them to control us through other uh, means. And I think this is why this book has to be read with Inherent Vice, because Inherent Vice actually ends, like, literally the second-to-last scene is like Doc, like looking at a computer trying to understand ARPANET. Yeah, and in you know, and he's and he's like, um, I don't, I don't know, and and so like you you fast forward thirty years, and you know you're sitting in Silicon Alley, and you're looking at like what's kind of come back around. It, I don't it know. kind of has come full circle because I think the use of ARPANET, uh, probably the the one chief sin of omission in the P.T. Anderson movie, was that it like it cut the ARPANET yeah. subplot, which sucks. But we were just talking about that. Yeah, I think um, Adrian Prussia, the kind of like the the baseball bat hitman that kind yeah. of does dirty work for the LAPD like he sort of uses it to track people that like the the right. cops or the establishment the crocker fenway establishment kind of wants to take out so it's like already being used as a counterinsurgency tool in 1970 right. and then with 9-11 it comes back it's like it goes public and civilian and then comes back full circle to the, and then right. everybody's like kind of yeah. sucked into it <clears throat> at that point because like it reminds me of a couple things like for instance, IBM, one of the first, I mean, their first major contract, of course, was the censuses, the U.S. census, and their second major contract was with Nazi Germany doing right. the Holocaust. Yeah. Then IBM, I'm pretty sure it was IBM, helped basically during the, uh, man, during the manhunt for the Bader-Meinhof gang, they were able to use big data to look at people's apartment water usage levels and figure out who had more people staying with them than was on the lease. Wow. And then they caught them in the 70s doing that. So pretty much like big data surveillance state, it's like it's been with us the entire time. It's just obfuscated. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, again... I don't know how many times I can say, we'll get into it before I actually start getting into it. But yeah, like Promise Software was another mm -hmm. example oh, yeah. of, you know, using, um, you know, sort of data uh, aggregation to track things. And I think that this is another thing that Pynchon is getting at here. And, and then I think it's interesting, like people call this like a cyberpunk novel or whatever. Um, but to the extent that that label is useful, it actually is useful to compare this book to Neuromancer because yeah. because when you actually think about what they're laying out like Pynchon's view of the internet is way more like cynical and pessimistic than Gibson's in Neuromancer because like Pynchon isn't say what Gibson is saying is that there is an interface a, a sort of biological um, biotechnical interface between the internet you know you plug in like the matrix Pynchon is saying that no you're you're integration with these systems was way more seamless it's like you won't notice it before before you know it you will be integrated into it and it will control you mm -hmm. and because this is a big thing that he's getting at 
over the course of his career, he is trying to show how this system will control you. And I think that that goes back to his essay in the New York Times. Like, why is it okay to be a Luddite? Like, well, do you want to be controlled without your knowing it? Like, I don't know. It's something interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think that when people think cyberpunk, they think now basically Matrix aesthetics and nothing else. But like going off of the paranoia and the realistic assessment of these control and command systems controlling us and then people who are rebels and are hacking and getting around it. Yeah, it's entirely in the spirit of the original cyberpunk vibe. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's definitely a critique of cyber utopianism as well, which I feel like as much as um, Gibson um, kind of might have played around with those ideas, wasn't he ultimately just like really buddy-buddy with like the EFF and like John Perry Barlow and like that <laughs> yeah. whole... That whole uh, the well people, as he says uh, at one point on page 73, when he says, you're not well people, are you? I think that's a reference to like the Grateful <laughs> Dead, like the deadhead I, I cyber to, network. I want to talk and, about that a little bit, actually, like Stuart Brand and everything. Mm-hmm, um, exactly. But so, um, yeah, no, you're uh, you're right. There are connections there. Um, so, all right. So then let's get into... Um, Let's get into the plot a little bit. I, I was like trying to plan this out. I was like, is there a way to do this without spoilers? But I I kind of just gave up. And <laughs> the thing, too, is if we were to say all the spoilers, like they wouldn't make sense if you don't know the plot. And then once you read the plot, like <laughs> the plot's so convoluted that like spoilers don't really make sense. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, well, then like, we'll, let's, let's just... Uh, wait. Okay, then let's uh, let's give it a shot. I think I just muted myself on accident. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Cool. Sorry. All right. So I'm gonna try to give it a shot here, and then like we'll kind of just as we go through it, like just kind of start peeling things back a little bit. Um, so, you know, as I wrote here in the notes, um, we kind of we open up on Manhattan. It's a, a beautiful spring day in 2001. Um, the the main character is this um, woman named Maxine Tarnow or Tarno, I guess is depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, she's dropping off her two kids, Otis and Ziggy, off at the um, kind of a, probably a pension-esque joke, Otto Kugelblitz School. Um, I didn't know anything about this, uh, but I guess like Operation Kugelblitz was a um, anti-communist like Nazi offensive <laughs> in <laughs> World War II. So it's like, Naturally. I don't know, it's probably him saying school is fascist or something. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, like, Max, like as a protagonist, I think Maxine is pretty interesting. Um, she, you know, as you pointed out earlier, Dimitri, like, um, Crying of Lot 49 has a female protagonist, and there are kind of some similarities here. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I just, what do you guys think about uh, Maxine as a protagonist? Because, like, we'll get into it, but she's... Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I really. I really liked her. There's a lot of zingers here. Uh, I think, as you pointed out, Jimmy. There's like 20 jokes a page. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very dense in terms of jokes, and I'd just say, in terms of all the Thomas Pynchon novels, I think Maxine's my favorite protagonist for a bunch of reasons. Some of which are professional for me. She's she's very funny. She's mm-hmm. both like a streetwise accountant and a certified fraud examiner. 
but she's also streetwise enough to actually get into gunplay, which happens in right. the novel. But she's also just a nice Jewish mom. Right. <laughs> it's one of the best depictions of accountants in fiction, which, you know, <laughs> fiction <laughs> doesn't depict accountants that often. And then fraud is just a really good way to meet a wide range of people from all sectors of society. And it plays like she's investigating fraud the way Doc Sportello is a, uh, like a private investigator in Inherent Vice. And it's just a good functional narrative tool. I really like it. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. She's uh, very funny. <clears throat> um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. Some of the reviews I saw were like, some of the reviews I saw were like mad that he jokes so, like there's so many like zingers and jokes in this. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like he was in his 70s when he wrote this. I mean, it's like, it's kind I mean, of impressive. Kind of right? He is a New be... Yorker. He could write a book. Is it because it's 9-11 that he's not supposed to joke about it or... Maybe that might be it. Plus, like, he's <laughs> always been zany. Like, every oh, yeah. novel he's ever written has, like, jokes that, like, sometimes I don't even think are funny. I'm just like... Same. <laughs> right. Like, more right. so in, like, Same, Gravity's yeah. Rainbow. Maybe because it's, like, the 1940s, kind of, like, old-timey, like, the Kenosha Kid. Like, all those songs. I'm like, yeah. okay, Pynchon, I get it. You like writing novelty songs. Like He loves those right. songs. He loves it. Shit. Every novel is, like, full of... But I do kind of like how he really dives into, like, whatever the era, the genre is, and uses it yeah. as, like, a, as, like, a Greek chorus device in all of his books. Mm-hmm. So right. it's like, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. I can't be too mad. No. Some of the songs... Um... I mean, like, there's, I, I mean, I guess I'm not always crazy about him, but um, there is a song in this book by, like, one of the, by the Driscoll Paget character, yeah. where she, like, has a song about, like, the dot-com um, Silicon Alley scene, mm-hmm. which I thought was really funny. You know that what I mean? Like, just, so there's some really good... You know what I think uh, it is? I think it's because he's a wasp. Like, there's um, nothing wasps from, like, Ivy League's love more than singing stupid songs with their... That's true. With their bros. Yeah, like fight songs. Yeah. Yeah, whatever <laughs> yeah. supper club or Drinking society song. they're mm-hmm. in. Exactly. That's true. Good point. It's all Yankee Doodle yeah. Dandy all the way down, so we can't hold that <laughs> totally. against them. Yeah. Totally. Um... Yeah, so as you pointed out, Jimmy, um, she's like a delicensed fraud investigator. Um, She's recently been separated from her husband. He's this, like, schlubby commodities trader named Horst Loeffler. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, one review I saw said that Horst was obviously the pension stand-in here, and I didn't... I mean, I guess I could see it, but I thought, like, her dad was more of the pension stand. Like I said earlier, it kind of felt like he was talking to us as a sort of elder. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, definitely. And to a, scene, a lesser but... extent, March, uh, the the mom, yeah. Web, yeah. the conspiracy web blogger, the old unreconstructed lefty. I think he speaks through a few of those characters, but I feel Between like Between the them. two. Yeah. The, not the two really Horst. I mean. Not Horst so no. much. Yeah. Right, I didn't think that either. I would say Maxine um, more, even though he's not a Jew. You know, he's not a yeah, Jewish he mother. Has literally, aspects like, of Maxine as well. Yeah, and any any of right. one of the central protagonist like investigator characters, I think, in any of his novels is like def. I mean, definitely primarily, I would feel like a vessel for him. Though he does, there are those like kind of soapbox moments, which I mean, I appreciate because it lets him kind of really it's go some off of the on best a tear. Moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's another thing I don't really understand, like, stand with the whole labeling him as postmodern. Like, 
Pynchon is a really, he's very ideological, and he's also very wholesome. Like, he's got a very, like, sometimes even downright cringe. Like, and I don't think it's him being ironic. Like, he really can get extremely, like, sort of wholesome and sentimental about... Well, I mean, you remember in the novel V, the uh, main motto or slogan or, like, central message of the novel was keep cool but care. Right. And, like... He yeah. was never, he never really allowed himself to be that sincere, like, in a clear way ever again. But that is fundamentally, like, his ethos, I guess. He's a care lord. Mm-hmm. I think he does <laughs> care. I think he does care. Yeah. I don't think he's just being, like, a deconstructionalist and just, like, having fun with, like, them deconstructing the medium. I, I don't think that, that, I just don't, like, in my gut feel like that's what he's driving at. Though I guess many people... Have taken I completely that away from agree him. with you. Same. I, did, it, yeah. I think it kind of feeds out to like the uh, I don't know CIA founded uh, MFA industrial complex of like writing, yeah. and I, I went through a little bit of that like writing programs in college, and I feel like I never was like given Pynchon. And I've even I've read I think it was Francis uh, Stoner Saunders' book. Like they would yeah. act, somebody actually brought out like Pynchon as an example of how you should not write. Because, you know, all these conspiracies and facts and all the... No, describe to me, like, how a snowflake falls perfectly on, like, a winter day. It's literally kind of that shit where I feel like they, they I nudge hate you. reading that shit. I know, and, like, and, and look where like literature is now. It's, like, like it's It's, it's unreadable yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing interesting. And I feel like this book is, like, a breath of fresh air. Because he's actually dealing with... It's not just, like, navel-gazing, like, internalized like me my internal monologue and everything yeah, like he's no. dealing with the world which i feel like is modern not post or i don't know what it is but it's not postmodern. Like, i don't think right pension is the opposite of a like a solipsist like he's intensely fascinated with the world he doesn't talk about himself i mean totally there you go he's the life, opposite yeah of... or the books yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's true <laughs> um okay so so yeah, so like the the sort of the beginning of the whole, um, I guess I don't know. Maybe with Pynchon's beginnings and endings are hard to pin down, but narratively speaking, where this all starts to um, sort of uh, hone in on the conspiracy here um, or on nine eleven or whatever is when this filmmaker comes into her office. Is this guy named Reg Despard, and he's been hired by a um, shady.com company called Hash Slingers um, to make a movie about Hash Slingers. Hash Slingers is it's one of the few tech companies to have survived the dot-com bubble collapse. Didn't you know? Not a not a real company, obviously. Um, but uh, I'm sure there are analogs. Um, I don't. I'm not that well versed in the dot-com bubble collapse, but I'm sure there were. You know, uh, earlier I sent you guys that clip from Razorfish. Razorfish was a startup that that did survive the the dot com bubble collapse, but eventually got bought by Mar- Microsoft mm-hmm. in like two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Amazon almost went under, but got kind of saved by the skin of its teeth and a couple of yeah. PayPal probably. Which yeah. this novel has so many interesting things to say about that. I know <laughs> we're not not quite there. Yet. Yeah, yeah. There are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. So, yeah, so um, Hashlingers is owned by this guy named Gabriel Ice. And as you pointed out, Dimitri, earlier, he is kind of modeled on Josh Harris. It also seems like he is modeled on, um, I mean, again, I don't really know much about, uh, you know, the specifics of Silicon 
Alley. But if anything, he is the opposite of Bill Gates, at least in outward appearance and everything. I feel like mm. when I was growing up, whenever you heard Bill Gates' name, you were almost indoctrinated to think like the good billionaire. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the nice one, you know? But it is funny how this book he is just read, very much He funny. reads books. Look at him. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, exactly. I have, like, the fuzziest memories of, like, the 1990s, like, before that was, like, fully the case. Remember when he got, like, a pie thrown in his face and he had the antitrust yeah. lawsuit from the feds? And he was kind of seen as being, like, a rapacious little nerd that was just gobbling yeah. up the entire computer industry. And then by the 2000s, I think he realized, oh, I have to... Right, I, I right. need to start this foundation, and now he controls all the farmland uh, in the United States. So it's totally cool. worked out. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think that, that – yeah, I don't know. I think Gabriel Ice might be – I wonder if Elon Musk was on Pynchon's mind at all because this came out, you know, in, like, 2013. And now Musk right. is kind of, like, almost like a hyper Gabriel Ice who's, like, this totally. rock star, like, bad – he is still kind of the anti-Bill Gates in a way of, like – not being like the sweater wearing doofus who reads books and like hangs out with Oprah. He's like the rock star badass, like, you know, rocketing to the future and all that shit. But he also is a person, like you point out, his entire rise, like, has been, you know, he's made a lot of money off of like Pentagon contracts to like launch satellites into space and, and things like that. So I, I wonder, I'm not, I, I can't say I'm 100% sold, but um, so- somebody like that. I got kind of a read of almost like the Google guys, like what was it, uh, Eric Schmidt and the uh, yeah. the other guy, because I think that in the novel his I think he goes to school initially in California, and there's some scenes where the Gabriel Ice's wife is describing him in college. And I think there's, well, there's some really interesting stuff there. Oh, you know what? They actually, having... they went to, sorry, they went to Carnegie Mellon, that's, actually. That's right. Yeah. Double yeah, yeah. ding, ding. Right. Uh. <laughs> um, but she describes him as being very zoned out in front of a bunch of different screens. And basically, like, she describes having conversations when they were dating where he's just, like, zoned out and saying really weird stuff. And it's like, and that's the guy who was chosen. Somebody yeah. who could dissociate. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it it does kind of imply that he was chosen from an early age, perhaps, which, you know, earlier I said I wanted to talk about, like, kind of like um, Stuart Brand and, you know, the kind of, like, some of the people behind the, lar- the construction and naturalization of the internet – but I mean, like people, like, wasn't Stuart Brand basically? He was experimented on with LSD at Menlo Park. I mean, like a yes, lot of the, he, you know I think he mean? was. Like, yeah, of, he was with the same crew with uh, Leary and Ginsburg and Ken Kesey right. and all those people. Yeah. Um, and the thing too is when they mention uh, Gabriel Ice's wife, two different times they mention butterflies. Like she's wearing butterfly earrings one of the time. Oh, yeah. There was something else and. I, I'm not joking. There are other MK Ultra like little tip of the hats, totally. especially in relation to her and Gabriel Eyes. Yeah, there is even outright mention, you know, multiple mentions of mm-hmm. MK. Uh, yeah, later MK on. Ultra, just like straight up throughout the the book as well. But it does. Yeah, you're right. It feels like he is picked, which again I think is pinching kind of like, you know, he is introducing this notion early on in the book of people pulling strings um 
on these forces that appear naturalized. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. uh, one of the uh, the one of the uh, Russian uh, mobsters mentions that Gabriel Ice has a tracking implant. Yeah. Which yeah. is just like, oh. Every okay. employee at Hashlingers has one. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, folks, <laughs> it's, it's pretty um, sketchy. Hashlinger's great name for a... I mean, it's, it's like great... It's got the Z at the end. Yeah. yeah, and it's not, like, capitalized. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's always, like... It's, is it always, it's in that, italics uh, at the time. First dot-com boom where all the companies had the stupid, <laughs> stupidest-sounding names. Like. Well, and, like, one of them in here is fucking hilarious. <laughs> it's literally unpronounceable. It's like... Or something like that. <laughs> it's like yeah. HWHWGG HWHWG.net or something like that. It yeah, stands like, for, hey, we've got awesome and hip web graphics here. <laughs> yeah and the party they go to that gets compared to josh harris's pseudo parties is similarly like it's like two uh, zones is uh, with like two z's like it's utterly unpronounceable it makes no right, sense right. yeah right. It, it's interesting yeah yeah um which is not really an exaggeration on pension's part like it really was like that <laughs> well i mean and it's like that again kind of like with the uber stuff you know what i mean yeah. it's just happening again or the no, cryptocurrency like, like all the like right. ridiculous like you know altcoins like floating around out there well you know when you and me when we research stuff dimitri we keep finding names of people who are just like the most pension ass sounding name possible Including mentioned in this novel, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, made off right. with, <laughs> made off. Bernie made off. Head of the Ponzi scheme. Like you can't. Like reality is just so bullshit. I know. That's or hilarious. Elon Musk. Like how how is it that he has the name of the like when Werner von Braun wrote his Mars novel in 1953, he said that the future Mars colonies would be governed by the Elon. And it's like, yeah. what the fuck is happening? Yeah, <laughs> you know. And I don't know, Musk Truly. just has, like, I don't know, Musk of, like, death. I don't know. It's, it's like, gross, <laughs> you know? No offense to South um, Africans out there, but... <laughs> no, you're right. That is really funny. <clears throat> um, um, but, yeah, no, so, like, you know, so, Gabriel Ice, um, bad dude, his um, his wife, I don't really know how to say her name. It's, like, Talis, I guess. Talis, or Talis. Mm-hmm. Um. Talis's mom is you mentioned her earlier, um, Dimitri, this woman named March Keller, mm-hmm. and she has a weblog. It's called like Tabloid of the Damned. Um, she's great, um, you know, pretty pretty funny. Like she's got like uh, you know, I just like, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but as soon as nine eleven happens, she's like, It's the right stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're doing it. Like <laughs> right away. Which, which is like the only logical you know, like reaction to that. Seriously, I mean, <laughs> the way the novel like, sets it up, like right, it, right. it has this like the, I mean, it, I, we say it all the time and someone it, but like this dracularity, this immense dracularity to it of like things were constellating in such a like people you know he mentions that people were like planning to go out of town the weekend before 9-11 because they just felt something was mm-hmm. off and like the vibe was yeah. fucked and like something was going to happen. Well, that's a, that's another big thing here, and and PTA actually points this out in Inherent Vice. I don't think this is mentioned in Inherent Vice, but this the the issue of time and time travel is a huge question in this book, because he almost seems to be um, like you know this is kind of like uh, put in this dialectic of like real world and virtual world, but he almost seems to be kind of like saying like 
can you predict certain events? Well, yeah, like we have the evidence. We should be able to see this is coming. And um, and it feels like there are even kind of time blips in this in this novel where like characters will know information before they know information. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So I don't know. there's an interesting thing with inherent vice. I don't know if you guys uh, have heard about the the lo- It's like there's a lost day in inherent vice because it, like they offhandedly mention a basketball game in almost every day of the novel. And oh, really? if you look up the dates, they're real basketball games. Oh, and, that's true. Yeah, he and, does this He does this with weather in Mason and Dixon. He has yeah. the exact weather observations down, like, historically. But, wow. And then so in, in, in Inherent Vice, basically the time when he's drugged and then he escapes uh, from Adrian Prussia, there is a missing day where, wow. like... Basically, it's he's he makes this puzzle that's really hard to even know that there's a puzzle in the novel. And then some people have you know speculated it means this or that. But like, you're absolutely right. He does these insane games like within the novel. Like, there's probably something in this that I completely missed. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does some. I mean, like he. Um imbues objects with like personalities and souls like objects can change it's like the ship in inherent vice you know it was preserved and then it became the golden fang Mm -hmm. it was a communist birch dodger was what you know a communist and then he came back the golden fang and he's like a reactionary like planting the bay of pigs you know what i (laughs) mean things can kind of uh change And, and so it's like if I don't know. It kind of fucks with our idea of continuity. Word I'm hearing is that Mickey Wolfman might not be as missing as we think. Like gone and are gone. So yeah. So you know, back to the plot here. Um, you know, the more that Maxine looks into Hashlingers, she kind of like she notices that they uh, that that they're as she puts it like starbursting money out into all these various different places. One of which is the Middle East. Um, and it looks like, you know, Gabriel Ice even has a hand. I mean, like, he's obviously in the pocket of uh, U.S. intelligence communities in the defense industries and is even funding um, both. It, I couldn't really tell. It sounds like he's funding both jihadist groups and CIA-backed anti-jihadist groups. So it's kind of like the Golden Fang, too, in Inherent Vice, where they're getting them coming and going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, and then, so, I don't know. So there is there is that dynamic, and all the people kind of, you know, sucked into this part of the story. But then there's this other part of the story that I think is a, a very important thing that we need to talk about, and that is Deep Archer. So, and, you know, the Deep Web in general. But in this book, there is something called Deep Archer, and what it is is, you know, they they go to great lengths to tell you the the makers of this game, mm-hmm. two guys named Justin and Lucas. They want to make it clear it is not a game. It's not a game. It's a sanctuary from you know the world and all of its problems and everything else. Um, but it is like it's kind of like uh, I never played that game Second Life, yeah, but I, I kind of felt say. like it was a little. Yeah, it kind of felt like Second Life a little bit. It's like, but um, then also you mix in like one of those like walking simulators where it's just meant to be beautiful, right? You get yeah. some of that as well. 
Yeah, and if there is any gamified aspect of it, it's just that you click. You just click everywhere to try to find a link, and it like will then crossfade you into another part of the digital realm in this, um, in this you know virtual world. Um, at times, it feels like it's kind of the sort of virtual manifestation of the deep web. Yeah, like when mm-hmm. when characters say they're going to meet in the deep web, it kind of feels like this is where they're meeting. Um, but it's uh, it's it's interesting um, because over the course of the novel, um, Maxine starts meeting people in departure. She's in, that's a fu- obviously it's a pun on the word departure. Mm-hmm. Um, but she starts meeting people from her real life in departure, some of which are dead, and it's it's kind of interesting. First of all, it's kind of like on Gravity's Rainbow where people are you know communing with people on the astral plane you know what i mean it's like there's like a afterlife element to departure like Mm -hmm. i think that they say that sometimes they'll see the faces of real people or sometimes people who have died in the course of the novel will appear in departure Mm -hmm. totally even 9-11 victims which he says Mm -hmm. like oh they they might be, be created as almost like memorials for like people that died but then also like there's there's kind of a liminality of maybe this is like where the souls of we're like a collective unconsciousness yeah with the numbers thing which i yeah right yeah um yeah it becomes so yeah it kind of becomes an afterlife it kind of becomes becomes an escape this thing like a frontier one of the kind of it's it's a frontier too exactly um and one of the things i thought was interesting about it like when they talk about building it so it's made by these two guys justin and lucas and they mentioned in the in in the plot like justin's input here was that he wanted to see sunny california you know like he he that was his uh creative vision in this and this is actually an interesting dialectic in this book as well between east and west coast and like what california represents and what the east coast represents um, but then Lucas's vision was this, like, he wanted something darker, you know, he wanted something like more apocalyptic is what it says. And it's just, again, it's this kind of interesting thing. I know you guys have pointed it out on the show, Dimitri, um, but it's interesting that Pynchon was also pointing this out even before Adam Curtis pointed it out, which is that like, there were multiple people, not just in media and in movies and stuff, but these tech people as well, their f- idea of fun was apocalypse yeah like burning man it was like that's what fun is if the world is a A big towering icon on fire just like that tarot card yeah yeah no and what is fun about i mean and he throws in a few like uh, mentions throughout of kind of like that like maybe like predictive programming kind of thing like Mm. like at one point uh maxine's sons are playing at an arcade in the midwest and there's some kind of apocalyptic like a uh, jet ski game where they're like jet skiing around a submerged like bombed out manhattan it's called hydro thunder uh, yeah hydro thunder and the, the towers are leaning precariously leaning to the side over. and they were right. you know just like excitedly like jet skiing around manhattan being like hey we i think she they say to maxine like we should really get a raft for like you know the apartment <laughs> just in case so it's like everybody is just waiting for destruction uh in a right. kind of bizarre way uh, that well, yeah he he picks up on it. What's interesting too is that between the two creators, they both can't decide what they should do. Whether they should go open source and just give right. away departure or sell it um, in some form. And 
that is also kind of a recurring theme in other novels, like especially Inherent Vice, where the real estate developer has like a mental break and he wants to give away, he wants to build something that's for free. And then like the forces of repression, like the FBI, like convince him not to. Right. And it, so it's very similar to this, where it's just this concern, this almost more like less socialism and more like biblical sense that you have to give away your wealth to save right. your own soul. Totally. And it also feels like, I, I, th- I feel like part of the reason why Pynchon likes to point these periods out in history is he's kind of trying to say that while there are cynical forces that either cause these things or then take advantage of them, they they do present opportunities for you know challenges from like i don't know the left like i think he's saying that like there is there was a you know, sort of like i don't want to use the word emancipatory but maybe mm-hmm. maybe did people did and okay i know for a fact that people did conceive of the internet in those terms at one point in time that like there was a kind of promise in you know the moment right after World War Two. You know you've got a, a no. communist organizing in Italy, mm-hmm. you that, know, in Greece and stuff. You know, it's like there's like these are moments that are pregnant with opportunity. I guess is what he's maybe saying. That's the thing. Like I'm, I just did this whole series on like basically, <clears throat> like World War Two, and this period right after World War Two. And some people maybe they look at like, oh, how did Nazis end up running NATO and. <laughs> end up in charge of West Germany. But it never had to be that bad. And it could have been worse, or it could have been better. At every one of these, like, crucial historical junctures, there are opportunities for things to become better or worse, right? Then it's never foregone conclusion. I, I think that's right. I think he's saying it's not inevitable that things have to end up this way. And if you even look at 9 11, it is the same. I think that there are. I mean, I watched this documentary um, the other day. It's, you know, 9-11 Press for Truth, Mm -hmm. which is about, like, the Jersey Girls and everything. And, like, how they, you know, and even one of the characters in the book said, I think it's Eric, the Eric character, says, like, 9-11 should have been a big reset for real estate and for all the sort of mechanisms of power or whatever. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. instead, they, you know, retrenched, reformed, doubled down on it. Yeah, Um, yeah. And you see that as a recurring theme, I think, throughout, you know, like the, what was it, you know, the old Rahm Emanuel cliche, never let a crisis go to waste. Like, I think you right. saw that after the 2008 collapse. I think you're even seeing it today with like the great, re- like Davos has this great plan yeah. for how we're going to do a great reset on it. And it just seems like, uh, I don't know, like more of an introduction to like some kind of techno neo serfdom where nobody owns anything. Like how, how convenient. Totally. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that... Uh, that there are these like moments of rupture. I think he. It seems like Pynchon wants to hold on to a little bit of a, of kind of optimism. But I, I think, uh, and you might have written this somewhere in your notes, Jimmy, that like like confronting history, in and, and like grappling with history in a real way, I think is something that Pynchon believes in uh, kind of deeply. And I, it's something I certainly believe in deeply. But it's like if you don't understand 
if you don't have some kind of apprehension of the real history of like what this country is and the forces that are at play, you're going to end up like everybody, like somebody says in the novel after 9-11, like everybody's regressing into children. What the hell is going on? Like this is like, instead of being a a reset button to, you know, uh, give people kind of a, a fresh chance or something like that, it actually like stunts everybody and everyone just starts watching reality TV and the same old hustles just keep on going. Um, totally. You know, so, yeah, it's a, without kind of, like, it does matter, right? I mean, I, I think, mm-hmm. like, I'm a hard believer in, like, explaining history to people can be radicalizing. Um, totally. And, and I think to the extent that he's stitched together these different things that people otherwise, like myself included, maybe wouldn't have thought are related, does have a kind of, like, radicalizing and, like, I don't know, positive effect. Um you know, if you no, grasp. Yeah, because yeah. Thomas Pynchon, he will bring up the Wobblies. He'll bring up the Reds in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He'll bring up different labor struggles. He'll bring up, you know, all throughout American history because he's mainly, you know, concerned with America. And so he will bring up the most disparate, like, forces trying to change society for the better. And he will link them in ways, some of which are fictional and some of which are just historical fact. And mm-hmm seeing these different struggles all linked into one great tradition of rebellion is just very inspiring. And that's why I, like you guys, get that read that Pinchon is, you know, fundamentally a good force. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, but he does write uh, quite a bit about the bad forces. Um, for example, <laughs> I think one of the like the sort of like embodiment of evil really um well obviously there's gabriel ice but he kind of feels like sleazy evil yeah but th- he's like surface we get this level character evil. he's surface level evil but then we get this character like nicholas windust yeah. who again great name windust <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um who who feels like i mean he's he's evil from like a historical you know angle like he's got there's multiple mentions to like you know his karmic debt like how many bodies he has on him like how like just torture that he's done you know the uh just awful things he's done in the world um mm-hmm. i mean i think like maybe a me personally um <clears throat> jimmy in the notes that you wrote that he might have worked for the yeah w- world league for freedom and democracy he, he, he kind of has that like vibe i kind of thought he's like a john perkins type yeah too, economic maybe? hitman yeah, mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely like it's definitely implied that he was like a like a rabid anti-communist neoliberal so it's in sort of implied that he's a cia or cia adjacent but like he was in the field in like guatemala doing heinous shit right yeah like he was one of the foot soldiers and then he sort of rose to middle management of the same heinous forces that yeah. yeah, I think uh, Pynchon mentions that Windus, one of his first assignments was he was on the ground, like, spotting for airstrikes uh, in the Chilean coup in 1973. September 11th. Yeah, September yeah. 11th, the first 9-11. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, and then uh, later, I think he taught at the School of Americas. Like you said, he was in Guatemala. And also, he worked for something called the, the a think tank called Tango which is another <laughs> one of these kind of, like, sketchy things. And I thought that was interesting because that's Spanish for I have – as in like give right. me that it's mine like that, right. that was maybe right. the joke that maybe he was going for there but yeah one of these like shadowy kind of like neoliberal neocon like security state 
you know, kind of orgs that, uh, that does horrible, awful things, uh, in, you know, Central and South America. So yeah, they, real bad dude. They talk, they talk about his financial holdings where he has little slices of basically all over the world when things would get privatized, he would buy into them. So yeah. he has a huge fortune made up of like, you know, shares in this oil rig and then, you know, right. like, and yeah, it's like very, he's seen working with Israeli and Taiwanese commandos in Guatemala, which is historically like accurate. That's who was yeah. doing the killing. And then there'd be a couple Americans like overseeing it. And that's all like just historical record really and if we believe alex yeah. jones his uncle who he called uh, the oliver stone of guatemala uh <laughs> literally <laughs> but who knows about that yeah. um well one of the weird things about wind dust and this is a recurring theme in pension's book and it and it does mostly occur between men and women but in gravity's rainbow there is you know men and men in which this dynamic occurs mm -hmm. but one of the interesting things is that maxine starts to feel attracted to him like she has this you know attraction that um she can't quite explain she's kind of disgusted by it in herself um and again, like, I don't feel like this really surfaced that much in Inherent Vice. This didn't really feel like this big of a theme in Inherent Vice as it is in this book. Well, no, it is because Doc Sportello's girlfriend left it's, him and she's yeah. like with a, um, a real estate magnate. Right. And it's implied right. that she's also maybe an informant, too. So right. it does actually yeah yeah and his yeah. other his other squeeze is like an assistant ta so mm -hmm. even though right. I, I think maybe it doesn't get read the same way there is a kind of actually, he's sleeping right. with the enemy a little bit yeah, yeah. it is the, an inversion kind of in a, in a way of the wind dust maxine thing mm -hmm. in a way because yeah she does penny does have power over him yeah. to an extent um yeah so like what are we to make of that because i think one way that i read it and again, this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. I think Pynchon is, he can become kind of micro-focused on the sort of things that, the ways that power is expressed, power imbalances and the way they become expressed in the world. One of those is sex. It, mm. I mean, like, it's hard to read Gravity's Rainbow and not walk away with that impression. I mean, like, so much of Gravity's Rainbow is just sex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is like, uh, all kinds. Yeah, all, <laughs> all kinds types. of sex. Yeah, um, bad, a lot of bad kinds. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Like, what what are we to, to make of that? You had it in the notes, Jimmy. What, did you, what do you think? Yeah, so this is a thing that I have been noticing for a while. And then I've listened to, like, a pension podcast. I've read a lot of essays. And I don't see it picked up that much. But basically... Like you were saying, there's this recurring theme of women, especially leftist women, lusting after right-wing, authoritarian, and or fascist men, right? Right. <clears throat> it's especially prominent in Vineland, Against the Day, and Bleeding Edge. These have novel. These are novels where female characters on the left, or, you know, to, to some degree, they engage in degrading and often violent sex, often in the form of adultery, too, with these right-wing men who are often in positions of law enforcement or criminals or some mixture of them. 
Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, when I first picked up on this, like, you know, this wavelength, I thought that Pynchon was like into like, he had like a cuck fetish or something. Right. And then <laughs> when I sort of didn't, like, there's too many other types of sex for that. Like, I thought that maybe Pynchon is being sexist, you know? He's just like, oh, the women just want the authoritarian man, you know? Like, uh-huh. I thought maybe it was like a almost a misogynistic reading. And for a while, I thought that too. But it's in rereading Bleeding Edge where it became more apparent to me that I think this is quasi-metaphorical. I mean, it happens in real life, but I think it's kind of like a biblically inspired thing. Because in the Bible, there's a recurring metaphor, like in Ezekiel, uh, you know, the prophet Ezekiel compares Jerusalem to a harlot who has gone astray from God, Hmm. right? And basically, if she repented and, you know, cleaved more to God, then, you know, that's like reunifying or whatever. And then in the New Testament, there's like Christ, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Like, it's a whole recurring, you know, theme, right? And I think we could question, you know, whether this is sex positive or sex worker inclusive or, you know, how in good taste this metaphor is. But thinking about it as a metaphor i think it's hard to disagree that america has many times like committed adultery against itself in the sense that america it says that it's trying to be for freedom and equality Hmm. and all of these lofty goals and basically every generation there are america is just basically betraying its itself you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. America has these instincts to be good, but then instead it basically lets the worst, greediest people take over. You yeah. Know? It's, yeah, it's like the scene in the movie, it's fucking hilarious, but where um, Coy Harlingen is trying to explain how America's addicted to sending soldiers overseas yeah. to <laughs> Vietnam. And Doc's like, is it addictive? <laughs> yeah. It's a funny scene. <laughs> yeah, it's a personification. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, yeah, um, so Maxine basically has sex with Nicholas Windust, and it's, like, consensual, but it's ugly and violent still. And she's both repelled and attracted to him. And then she has in her mind that she's still, even though this guy has, like, a astronomical body count of like heinous sins and people he's tortured and killed she still kind of wants to redeem him in some way yeah i can save him yeah yeah (laughs) yeah literally i can save him i can fix him Uh it's it's interesting but another interesting thing about that seeing scene and this occurs several times over in the book and this is a huge theme in the book i didn't i don't know if i put it in the notes that much but she, it kind of compares her to like a video game control her, controller in that scene. Hmm. And there are multiple other parts of the book where she says, you know, her, you know, eyeball humidity uh, moisturizer app is running or something. <laughs> like there are multiple um, references made to people operating like machines. Yeah. And and I think it's like he he again. There's this question of like posthumanism or like transhumanism, which was like big with these people, Definitely. you know, with the Silicon Alley type people. And I think it's another example of. And I think this is a huge part in We Live in Public, 
What happens when you interface with these systems and turn over a part of yourself to systems that are completely unaccountable, yeah. uh, driven by profit? You don't have, I mean, and that you are, you're turning over a part of your own control to them. I don't know. I think it's, I just think it's an interesting question. Um, uh, there's, I don't know, there's like a Catherine Hill book about like posthumanism and, and stuff like that. I think that this book or this, yeah, this book kind of like digs into that question. Like, is this something we really want? <laughs> you yeah. know, do we want to, I don't know, do we want to transcend our humanity or become like Stuart Brand said, like gods? Like, I, I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I want it either, but you, you <laughs> see people that are still like on top of Silicon Valley today seem to want it. They seem to be very interested in that. I think like Jeffrey Epstein and his science buddies were very interested in that. Everyone wants to be like a sus AI god and like a nanite cloud, like yeah. floating around in the ether forever. And uh, it reminds me of this interesting uh, German documentary about the Unabomber from 2003. I believe it's called The net and i forget who said it it was like some Stuart brand adjacent person might have been Stuart brand himself but he had some interesting quote about technology and he said like we create machines and then mold ourselves to the uses of them yeah. and that's what you know i think uh what you said is spot on like we mold ourselves to the uses of these tools that are controlled by forces that are in some way like occulted or sometimes they're out in the open but it's been so normalized yeah. that we don't even think we somehow think that like hyper capitalism and like personal liberty and freedom is just something that naturally these things naturally go together but if you look at the history of like every frontier at every stage of american history it's been the same recurring kind of tragedy every single time where the rich men uh, as don henley says in the last resort some rich men came and raped the land nobody caught them um, and, right. you know, like the, the land frauds, like settling the West and the monopolization mm. of like mineral resources and oil and the, the, the vertical integration, the cartelization of like, you know, uh, like building economies of scale to just control everything with like trusts and that uh, that kind of system, like the, the little person, like the yeoman farmer, the pioneer, the homesteader, the internet, like cyber freak, like cyberpunk guy. The yeah, the coder, the code monkey, like they all got screwed over at a certain point. Um, the, the space gets colonized and that's basically what happens to Deep Archer in the novel, right? Yeah. They specifically compare Deep Archer to claim jumping. Like yeah. it's it's overt in the novel. It's so wonderful. Like Pynchon knows about that history. I bet he read it like is. the Declaration of Cyberspace by John Perry Barlow, which like literally makes that like he totally. says, "I want it to be like a Jeffersonian utopian frontier." Blah blah blah. So it was like very much in the the minds of even the people that were like creating this worldwide web culture was that it was the new frontier. And I don't know. I guess hasn't that been. I don't know if you guys would fully agree, but that's been like a, a, a powerful anxiety um, in like American culture and political economy since like, you know, 1890 or 1900, the closing off of the frontier. Right. And this country that was always like built upon like having some kind of like open land of resources to steal basically to like buy yourself another another year another decade and just keep going and going and i think you could see the logic of like u.s imperialism like extending that to a global scale but then the internet is like once you've kind of dominated the world at the end of the cold war what's next well the frontier inside of all of our minds i guess is the, the cyber frontier is the last one uh, kind well, of if dark. you look at the lineage, <laughs> if you look at the lineage of these people in Silicon Alley, 
in where where they started. I mean, I think the you can track it with these two books, with Inherent Vice and Bleeding Edge, because it does feel like, well, it doesn't even feel like this is literally what happened. The people that came out of like the new communalist movement, like the commune movement of the '60s and '70s, mm-hmm. became the people like this the silicon alley silicon valley tech entrepreneurs Stuart brand being one of them in the whole earth network mm-hmm. but that was the point like i think that like i mentioned earlier in the opening of one of those whole earth catalogs Stuart brand has a uh, a quote that's like we are like gods or we have become gods we better get you good at it <laughs> and what he means is like we you know aggregating information having it at the tip of your fingers um and and then over time, this becomes, uh, you know, a deeply embedded part of political economy. I mean, but there's a lineage here. And, you know, and, and I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's just interesting that one of the main parts of that lineage, Stuart Brand, was this guy that, yeah, was MK'd with <laughs> Well, it really makes me wonder, like, who's we? <laughs> Who exactly is we yeah. that he's talking about here, you know? Right. Like, is exactly. it doesn't, I don't think it means all of us. I think there's going to be gods and there's going to be not gods. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, that's the thing, too. Like, uh, in talking about basically the hippies became these, you know, tech nerds, the thing is, there's a part of the book, uh, Bleeding Edge, where they talk about the nerds versus the jocks as like a yeah. funny metaphor. And right. they basically say that the jocks, which they con- one of the characters compares to Wall Street, uh, basically, in the long run, the jocks are more in sync with the deep market rhythms, and that always beats nerditude, no matter how smart the nerds are. <laughs> that's really interesting. And it's like, that's what happened with each tech boom. It's just whoever already has the money like, yeah. just right. consistently stays rich. Yeah. Totally. Um, on a funny side note, there's like a Jacobin podcast called <laughs> The Dig. Oh yeah, yeah, which is like I've heard of it. Like this, I I listened to this episode yesterday with this guy Fred Turner who wrote this book called From Cyberculture, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, and him and the host were like. And then Stuart Brand and Ken Kesey were experimenting. This was wacky. Anyway, it's back to the relevant oh, stuff. God. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like, this is How do you gloss paramount. over that? Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's an integral part of the story you're telling, you know? Well, I mean. And that's the cool thing about Pinchon is he basically has more than one novel that depicts like these 60s communes and different things and then how they get corrupted and then the lies and self-denials people go through and then the the human detritus that comes afterwards like he's old enough to have seen multiple waves of this shit yeah and oh it just happens to fail every time and then get reabsorbed like okay (laughs) but isn't life made possible by not knowing everything I don't know where you got that from. It's not that living in public is going to be imposed on us. We're going to be conditioned to ask for it. Fourth quarter 2004, I'll roll out the consumerized version of We Live in Public. And I'll charge them for the platform, and I'll charge them for recording their lives to disc. Now you can have it too. What I'm starting to see is that there's a direct parallel between running an apple orchard and living in public. 
They're taking little pieces of you continuously. The collection of them is greater than little me. I'm just a product. I'm a product to be harvested. Harvesting you? Yeah. They're harvesting my psyche in order to feed themselves. Well, so, okay, so that, that may, I think that covers basically the whole plot, the characters, the kind of, like, themes and everything we're, we're hitting at. We, we had only took us an hour and a half to get there. <laughs> um, so then I think the next part of this, like, I wanted to pivot to 9-11 mm-hmm. um, because, like, this is a 9-11 book. Uh, it not only takes place during 9-11, during the time leading up to it, but it is also very interested in the immediate aftermath um it's interested in how it changed things like i said earlier it almost kind of feels like a historical fiction rendering of it i found like one academic article that said that it may be one of the first to to treat it as an actual historical event in a um sort of like american canon you know uh type account rather than as a mediated event or something like that so i don't know Hmm. who the fuck knows if that's true or not but it's interesting to think about Mm -hmm. um so i mean i wanted to talk a little bit about it so like throughout the book there's like several like references that like something's coming yeah i think there is uh there is a scene right before it happens where maxine meets with this man named chandler platt i think is his name where the dude basically is just like, yeah, we're about to do 9-11. So, and, and what was fascinating about that scene is that Maxine is so blown away by this that she, the only, I don't know if you guys noticed this, the only way she knows how to decompress from it is she goes out and shops. Mm-hmm. She's just like, I have to go shop. Isn't that exactly <laughs> what George W. Bush told Americans to do right after 9-11? Exactly what he told them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that was at the law firm of Hanover Fisk, which I thought was interesting. I wonder <laughs> if that's a, a a reference to Fisk, the uh, the partner of Jay Gould, one of the most rapacious robber barons of like or, the post-Civil uh, War era. Handover Fist, too. Oh, Hanover oh, yeah. Fisk. <laughs> and yeah, Chandler there, Platt. It, it doesn't get much waspier than know. that. So I think that it's like she checks in with the wasps, and they all know 9-11 is coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> which, honestly, like, I kind of feel like that's the side that we don't ever... I mean, people say, oh, Bush did it. But like when you think about the class that like the Bushes kind of like represent in government, mm-hmm. that and yeah. you know, I was just reading the other week how there are all these like insurance drills I think in the month or two before 9-11 mm-hmm. to like uh, uh-huh. test out for all the insurance companies um, you know uh, what would happen if a huge disaster I think it was a hurricane <laughs> so it was a little bit like removed but uh, what would happen if New York just got totally attacked and all the I don't know right. just uh, there definitely uh, are intimations there's they also mentioned something that is very true so I know that Pynchon is like familiar with his 9-11 conspiracy theories for lack of a better term of the insider trading that occurred in the days uh, immediately leading up to 9-11 if United and American Airlines which is real Uh, I think Snopes tried to debunk it but I think (laughs) they tried in the funniest (laughs) way possible yeah in the lamest way possible I think they eventually just said oh like there is just like an innocent explanation for this (laughs) no they said that there's no conceivable way that Al-Qaeda could have been trading 
on the stock market, which every person's <laughs> obviously like, yeah, no, duh. Like, it wasn't Al-Qaeda that did <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Nothing to see here. They're in caves, folks. Yep. They didn't have computers. Yep. <laughs> um, my God, yeah. So that's never gotten to the bottom of. Also, the the hu- the, the, the consciousness project at Stanford. The Princeton Global yes. Consciousness. Now, that's yeah. a real thing, right? Yeah. And I believe I saw it in a Stephen Greer UFO documentary. <laughs> I remember just like a passing reference to it about the random really? number generator. And because uh, that's also something that Pynchon brings up, which kind of sounds like it's something that maybe he would have made up. Like this is I a fabrication. I uh, I'm pretty sure that Stephen Greer says that directly preceding 9-11, the number generator started spitting out like non-random sequences of numbers. I, I'd have to maybe double check that. I can't say 100%, is, but that, that sounds, because, you know, Stephen Greer, of course, he was using it to make some point about, like, you know, the collective consciousness and, like, contacting ETs or some <laughs> bullshit. But, like, I think that is a thing that's reported to have happened. Who knows? Maybe that's a psyop. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so the, there's that as well. But the, the, the insider trading is definitely um, like well, verifiably was- true. Mm-hmm. There was insider trading for sure. There was also like you know the, like the what was it, like the E ten stations that like Mossad operates. Yeah. Like apparently traffic was going fucking crazy the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the global consciousness thing in the narrative is interesting because not only I, I tried to research it, um, I could, it was inconclusive. It sounded like there was one website that had something about it, but I couldn't tell if it was like legit. Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, the Global Consciousness Project is real. I mean, they did have these random number generators. But in the narrative, it's interesting because it links that with Deep Archer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Deep Archer's source code is, like, woven into the um, random number generators. Yeah. And so as 9-11 approaches, the random number generator becomes n- more non-random, which opens up the door for people to hack through the code of Deep Archer That's and right. get into, into it. Um, so it's this weird, it's this interesting link up between like, you know, what happens, quote unquote, in the real world. Again, you have this sort of like dialectic, which I kind of want to dive into a little bit later. But you have this kind of interesting link up between these two things. And again, and that's another interesting thing. And again, this is in all pension books, but this one is just beating you over the head with it. That there's surface world and then subterranean world. And you don't get a better sort of illustration of that than like the deep web. Um, But, like, there's, you know, Pynchon is constantly trying to, um, you know, tease out the sort of, you know, the edges, the bleeding edges Mm -hmm. between those two things. Um, And it's why he's so fascinated with lines. You know, Mason and Dixon is the perfect example. And lights, too. And, like, Maxine, she's a regular diver into certain depths through looking at fraud like she knows she's dowsing how constantly. the how the sausage is made she knows right. the normal levels of like subterranean and then she dives deeper and sees some even crazier stuff like in yeah. the course of the novel yeah and actually so so yeah so we're talking about 9-11 um and that's fascinating you pointed that out dimitri because i literally wrote that in my um you know in the side note um going back to chandler platt the, the conspiracy that Pynchon lays out isn't that Bush did 9-11. Hmm. It is basically that the entire, you know, WASP network, yeah. apparatus, GOP, mm-hmm. everything, like, they did 9-11, which, which I was sort of stoned last night and laughing about, which <laughs> I was just like, like, it's a hilarious thing, like, 
granted, I'm sure Democrats were in on 9-11, but if, it would be funny, though. It's just funny to think about, like, John Kerry running in 2004 and not being able to be like, my opponent <laughs> did 9-11. But because he took that skull and bones oath and laid in a coffin exactly. and got pooped on and, like, had to, like, I don't know, lick Geronimo's skull or whatever the fuck. Uh, he can't say it forever. So, you know, they, they sewed that one up good. Um, exactly. Just, I love, by the way, I, I wrote this down in the notes that I feel like there's another pension reference. Again, he's, like, tying these things back further back in history during Maxine's conversation with Chandler Platt. Uh, he he mentioned I forget what he mentions, but she said you people tend to be manlicker Cardano types, which I think is referencing the rifle that Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly used to shoot JFK. And he says yeah. Jackie and I were dear <laughs> friends, and I'm not sure I oughtn't to resent that. <laughs> <laughs> So this is like a really well, funny novel. Like, but I mean, he's he's implying that you know he's at least through Maxine implying that like you motherfuckers killed JFK too. I know that. Right. Well, because right, right. that's the thing. If you were to read it, like maybe if from on like just a literary reading, there's so much Israeli shit that you might think that Pynchon's going with the Israelis. Mm-hmm. But they're, right. They're if you really I think plot it out, they're peripheral the entire time. Totally. They're mm-hmm. not doing it. Yeah. And. Like, I think that, no, okay, basically, you know how, like, Nicholas Windust gets whacked in the course of the novel? Yeah. I think yeah. that he was killed because they found proof through the video that he was maybe planning to undermine 9-11 with the Stinger missile. Oh. Interesting. Okay. Because why else would he be killed? Yeah. I think that, and before 9-11, Nicholas Windust is tracking down things that are leading towards 9-11 and almost yeah, like he's trying that, to stop it yeah which he that did undermine things in guatemala yeah so it's not necessarily that he's not evil but that maybe he's this amount of evil but not full evil totally and they killed him for it I, you know yeah. that that actually reminds me i hadn't thought about him in relation to a real life character but i just happened to watch just because i was curious about kind of the limited hangout potential but i watched the whole looming tower miniseries last week you yeah. know which is on hulu which is produced by in my opinion, somewhat uh, sus. Alex Gibney and Lawrence Wright from the New Yorker. Yeah, totally sus, man. Yeah, totally like he gets sus. every single like hot pinchinesque topic to make a documentary. He makes like three documentaries a year. It's like ooh, Theranos, Enron, WikiLeaks, like at, like literally everything. Yeah. And uh, but but actually, I mean, it was kind of in, it, again. It was like it was totally a limited hangout. But like if you read between the lines, you could kind of like see things happening that kind of like for me i feel like if a normal person watched it they would kind of be like oh this like bureaucratic infighting like caused 9-11 what a tragic idiotic mistake but i was looking at it like reading between the lines of it being like oh there's there's literally a scene where prince bandar like tells his wife to write a check in her name and then the next scene is like the terrorist handler like picking up a check at western union they don't say it they don't like literally say it and meanwhile the the wife is like oh are we going to crawford this weekend i just talked to laura and he's like yeah and so it's like they're kind of hinting but i think windust kind of reminds me of john o'neill who's played by um jeff daniels in this who's like kind of like a hard drinking asshole like irish catholic 
FBI counterterrorism guy who, you know, uh-huh. was was really hot on the trail but kept getting roadblocked by the CIA and even people like within the agency. He was eventually forced out under kind of like sketchy circumstances like he lost his briefcase at like a seminar somewhere and like it was stolen and then he was like forced into retirement and then he got a job offer from Larry Silverstein at the World Trade Center. And he got a job as the head of security at the World Trade Center in, like, the last week of August in 2001. And then he died in 9-11. And so he was one that was, like, very obsessed with, like, there's going to be an attack coming. There's going to be an attack coming. And just got absolutely kind of cock-blocked at everything. And it's, like, it doesn't even portray him. And I'm sure he will. It's not like, oh, this guy's, like, a hero. He's, like, a perfect person or whatever. But I do have to believe that in this whole like you know world of like government agents and counterterrorism and stuff it's hard for me to believe that like there weren't people sincerely trying to stop this and that were being yeah. and i think if there was a kind of conspiratorial thing going on there would have had to be roadblocks put up to like prevent intelligence from getting around to prevent the normal operation because a lot of these guys were like floating around the country pretty flagrantly it's not like they were hiding particularly well they were like going to strip clubs and like going to flight schools and all these other things so i i think that uh maybe wind dust was like on the level of like a a kind of like a john o'neill who like maybe he was willing to do horrible things in like central and south america and like train death squads but killing like three thousand americans in downtown manhattan (laughs) I feel like that would be, like, there's a small group of people for whom their consciences are twisted around enough to where they say, well, this is for the greater good. But for most, like, mortal human beings, I think even if you're, like, a psychotic anti-communist war criminal who's worked for the CIA, that would be considered, like, a bridge too far. Like, you just wouldn't do that. And you wouldn't think anybody in the government would kind of... But but Windust is maybe... I wonder if John O'Neill, like... I wonder if these thoughts went through his head that somebody is like in the government is trying to stop me. You know, I mean, the the TV series obviously doesn't like go there, but you do have to wonder um, if like how how woke, as it were, you know, some of these like government officials were or were they? I don't know. Yeah. Like civil service pilled and just like didn't were were unable to conceive of that i don't know but yeah pinchin i don't know maybe he's playing with that as an idea of like there were people even within the security agencies that aren't like like they they didn't want to bring the chickens home to roost necessarily like this yeah that would be a more kind of holistic uh, sort of portrait of the conspiracy you know what i'm saying that Mm -hmm. that to me would make it mean would make it make more sense. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a inter- it's a good reading. I I hadn't even considered that, Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, it's just in keeping with the whole Shiomara, Gu- the Guatemalan that he saved, like that whole subplot that he's basically right. evil, but that he has a good side. Doesn't negate the evil, but you know, he was. And then yeah. it's like, why else was he killed then? So. Yeah. That is, there are multiple pension characters like that, especially in Gravity's Rainbow, who are like yeah. bad. But then it's just yeah. like, well, because that is how the world works too. It's just like there, there are so many different levels of bad, you know, yeah. and people have their own arbitrarily drawn lines. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, and again, it's that pension theme of lines. Like who, oh. where do you draw your line, and, and why? And how many pension novels where like the sidekick or the best friend is a cop? 
I mean, it right. happens more than once. Like, mm. Right. Uh, Vineland and Inherent Vice, the main character's best friend is, like, law enforcement. And basically, <laughs> Pynchon doesn't refuse humanity or good intentions to some law enforcement. It's true. You almost kind of end up, like, feeling, like, some kind of warmth towards, like, Bigfoot Bjornsson, even though he's a whole huge asshole at the end, because at least he's, like, not on the level of... It's like he buys into the the fiction. He buys into the meta-narrative about, like, America, even though there's so many ugly sides to it that he he still would find something repulsive about like this level of fraud and corruption and domination and control like it would it would burst the narrative for him yeah and so yeah i think he he opens up a little space for that which i think is interesting yeah um yeah he does that theme is also so earlier you were saying jimmy that in some ways, structurally and thematically, we are in the same terrain as Inherent Vice, mm-hmm. because that like cop dialectic is very, very present in this yeah. book too, in Bleeding Edge. Because like, there's multiple times in Inherent Vice where Doc is like, "Am I a cop? <laughs> Am I a fascist? <laughs> like, what's going on here?" But then like, Maxine also kind of has this um, experience too, and like one of the best scenes in the book is when she's talking to her dad. And he's like, I tried not, you know, I tried to not let you guys watch those cop shows growing up. Um, And she's like, well, it wouldn't even matter now because now we've got the internet. And her dad's like, are you insane? Like, it's worse now. Because, like, now you you aren't even aware that you're entering the realm of propaganda. Now it's completely naturalized into your life. Now Now you have propaganda, you know seamlessly interfacing with you at all times i don't know it's just it was it was one of those scenes where like i said earlier it felt like pension kind of talking down to you like look you you think that this can be good or that at best it's harmless whatever you're going to turn over all your privacy to mark zuckerberg whatever but i'm telling you it's not good and let me you know spend 450 pages telling you why in a nuance i mean he even goes he's pretty direct and he says and just wait till these phones everybody has have internet on them and it's all over everyone's going to be tracking themselves and they're going to beg for it and it's like you know i mean that was already starting to come a little bit true in like 2013 so it's not like he was like predicting the future but i think he's really driving that point home that like you need to stop thinking it's interesting this came out the same year as like the snowden leaks and like that was totally. kind of the first turn towards, oh, maybe mm. there's like a little bit of a dark side to like social media and the internet and all this stuff. And maybe we should kind of think about it. But there, I mean, it's just progressed. Like, I think Pynchon's right that like, you know, whatever level of vigilance we thought we were having, um, even in, the, in those days, uh, is inadequate to like the level of control that they're trying to push on us through these devices. And, and we don't even know. That's the thing. It's like god that like techno optimism kind of like really rode all the way throughout the 2000s you know we thought that like what uh facebook was gonna bring like democracy to like the middle east or something like remember all those narratives like the twitter revolution in iran right and, uh, yeah like in egypt the arab spring is making and now i, I even see if i want to like put my pension hat on like occupy wall street with all of its yeah. kind of tech hyper tech um kind of things and like i participated in like occupy wall street and looking back on it now it's like oh my god like we were not nearly paranoid enough about (laughs) the the role we were playing and like how it got like i remember time magazine you know henry luce uh 
old, about as waspy as it gets, and skull and bonesy as it gets, you know, they made, like, their person of the year in, like, the end of 2011, like, the protester, which, you know, yeah. it's, like, people at Occupy right. were like, yeah, the protester, but it's, like, <laughs> uh, they're just, like, celebrating all these governments getting overthrown, you know, and, like, various operations, like, for whatever fucking reason, but, you know, you could see how it got weaponized, and... Yeah, you know, and they were tracking everybody the whole time. It came out later. Like, you know, they were using right. it almost as like a laboratory of like, how do we deal with like a protest, you know, movement and like, you know, uh, like surveil them all while tricking them into thinking that they're not all being like minutely watched and fucked with on like a very granular level. So I think we're still in that paradigm. Like we haven't exited it. Totally. Which can I uh, just read briefly Ernie's? Uh, little speech here. Please do. Uh, I I wanted to read it. Yeah, Mm. please. So, okay. Well, there's two parts to it. Um, There's the part where Maxine, the main character, and Ernie, her father, who is, I would argue, one of the more pinch-on stand-ins. So, Maxine says, maybe TV back then was brainwashing, but it could never happen today. Nobody's in control of the internet. And Ernie says, you serious? Believe that while you still can, sunshine. You know where it all comes from, this online paradise of yours. It started back during the Cold War, when the think tanks were full of geniuses plotting nuclear scenarios, attache cases and horn rims, every appearance of scholarly sanity, going into work every day to imagine all the ways the world was going to end. Your internet, back then the Defense Department called it DARPAnet, the real original purpose was to assure survival of U.S. command and control during a nuclear exchange with the Soviets. Now, mind yeah. you, mm-hmm. Pynchon wrote that in 2013, and Surveillance Valley came out in 2018, and there were some people on that wavelength, but very few. Yeah, um, shout out to right. Crypto Cuttlefish, who also was the exactly. one who exposed me to the idea that, uh, I think in their words, uh, Thomas Pynchon was like an undercover, like revolutionary uh, mm-hmm. author, <laughs> like basically embedding like Same. intelligence into his novels, which is really what, yeah, like sparked my like more recent interest in uh, in him. But the, that insistence, like, you know, the cookie monster is a psyop, folks. And it sounds yeah. ridiculous, but then when you start to look at it, it's like, you know, in a kind of way, he's he's right. Like, it's literally true. I mean, in, in a certain kind of context of, like, putting a cookie monster on a computer to test, like, cathexis levels in children. <laughs> like, looking at the computer as a friend, basically. To a de-radicalize them. Yeah, yeah, and before that, it had been basically, like, the SAGE system. It had been, you know, basically uh, tracking, like, nuclear missiles. And, like, it, it was all about military, like, air force <laughs> command and control and um even you know okay the other thing i think we brought it up at the beginning but the promise software mm-hmm. um i didn't yeah. realize this but i found a little i think i linked it to you guys earlier but i found some article um i forget the name of the guy right now but he pointed out that an early version of promise was used in the phoenix program in vietnam it was dude what's yep. fucking crazier about that is that um Bill Ham says Bill Hamilton, right? That was his mm-hmm. name. Um, who, he, yeah, he worked as a contractor uh, for the CIA in the Phoenix program. His wife, Nancy Hamilton, worked for Jack Ruby at his club. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, come on. come on! Oh my god! I fucking not shit you not. Which and also just the name of the software, Promise Software. I mean, what's more promising sounding than that? Like, come on! A promise, yeah, it's yeah. Just ridiculous. Uh huh. It's pretty crazy. 
Well, I mean, to to on that note, I think you know, this is an interesting. This is another interesting tension in Pynchon's work, like the idea of lineages and yeah. blood. So, like in one way, he's saying like you can't escape lineage. Where he's not, I don't think he's saying you can't escape it. Yeah. I think he's just he's saying not fatalistic. that like it's yeah, it's not fatalistic because like Pynchon's own life his own uh, his own biography would be an example of someone escaping that yeah. <clears throat> and i think that that is why he has this emphasis on blood especially in this book mm-hmm. like family and blood but yeah. i think he is saying that you should be you know extremely wary of the lineage if the lineage was yes born in these contexts of command control you know anti-communism like you know, if it is, you know, as we pointed out earlier, Arpanet, Darpanet, and all that. And he's always tracing out, like, these basically red families. These families of, like, people rebelling in certain ways. I think in, in all of his novels, they have linkages there. And then I just wanted to finish with the other really notable thing Ernie said, which was... <clears throat> The chief argument against conspiracy theories is always that it would take too many people in on it, and somebody's sure to to squeal. But look at the U.S. security apparatus. Those guys are wasps, Mormons, skull and bones, secretive by nature, trained sometimes since birth never to run off at the mouth. If discipline exists anywhere, it's among them. So of course it's possible. Yeah, absolutely on point. Yeah. As far as I know, he's never like spelled it out that like explicitly yeah. and just well. And so it's again, if this is his last book, it would make sense that this is his parting words. Like, look, guys, like I think I'm off for better worlds, but you should be aware. Like, this is how this works, and yeah. um, I don't know. It's just wisdom from the elders, I guess, is the way I interpret that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> like um, it's it like. If you do a close reading of just about any period in history, it really, like, you're not ever in danger of being too paranoid. You might be wrong some of the time, but if you are paranoid about people's motives and assume sometimes the worst, not about human nature, but about individual actors and institutions, chances are you're not going to be that far off. Well, exa- I right. was just thinking about that before we recorded, about how all the most, like, both Ernie and March, the most paranoid, lefty, kind of a conspiracy theorist characters in this novel end up being incredibly more right and, like, spot on in their analysis of, like, what's about to happen, regardless of whether or not 9-11 was, like, an inside job or not. Their paranoid heuristic allowed them to see what was coming down the pike, whereas everybody else was almost in, like, a, like some kind of stunned, dissociated kind of a, a right. space, a headspace of, like, not being able to make sense and just being basically powerless to, like, actually stand up and, like, oppose what was coming. So I feel like, like, I, I think that's very true across the board for kind of you know, for people that say, yeah, but isn't it dangerous to believe in these, like, conspiracy theories that aren't true, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's more dangerous to not believe them sometimes, in a sense, because yeah. you're you're giving way too much credit to people who do not deserve it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're not in a court of law. It's not, like, beyond a reasonable doubt. We're in the court of 
public perceptions and uh, vibes to a certain degree. Uh, so I think that the bars, the evidentiary bar is a little bit lower. And I think some of these people warrant, I mean, you're talking about like the Bush family, the people that, you know, manage like Nazi assets during World War II that like flooded cocaine into the country in the 1980s yeah. that yeah. maybe to be perfectly honest, like George H.W. Bush was skulking around Dallas in 1963 after like probably being involved in like the Bay of Pigs invasion and uh, has never had a straight story of where he was that morning. Hmm, I don't know, but... You know, I think, like, things, when you get dealing with people like that, and then they get away with everything, like, they just, just a ran-contra, like, they got away with all of it, and who knows what he did in regards to the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism, but I would venture to guess, like, with, you know, under the, the aegis of, like, William Casey, or his vision, they did quite a bit to, like, necessitate that collapse, um... And it's interesting there's, like, some Russian characters. I guess you don't get too much out of it in this, but it was fun to kind of see them uh, kind of skulking about. I guess Libs, uh, Blue Check Libs, will be disappointed that it wasn't Putin that did 9-11. Spoiler (laughs) alert, you know. Uh, It wasn't Putin and Donald Trump, like, planning it out of Trump Tower. But, but, you know, Trump's um, got connections, too. Should we talk about March's parable? Like, I think yeah. that sort of like connects yeah. right now. Yeah, sure. Totally. We should totally. Um, so, do you want to re- uh, read it, Jimmy, or do you want to? Um, yeah. So, just summarize it. Yeah, I'll know, probably summarize the parable, but <clears throat> okay. quote the uh, end part. So, this character, March Kelleher, who is another quasi pension stand in. These two characters, Ernie and March, they are both the most paranoid. They're also the most probably politically active in terms of like Ernie opposed Nicaragua, all the shit that like Nicholas Windus was actually doing, he right. knew about. Like March, you know, she knows all about her uh, son-in-law, Gabriel Ice. She knows all about the intelligence stuff. So this is a speech that March Kelleher gives to a... I think the Kugelblitz, like the little school, the uh, little graduation uh, that they have. So she's <clears throat> giving a speech and she gives a parable about a ruler who rules this you know, empire. And he would like to creep around in disguise and do secrets, uh, just see how his subjects you know, thought of him. And anytime he would be caught or he would just basically be bribing people. And he basically, this ruler, this king, found an older lady, and this older lady basically... Yeah, like a bag lady. Yeah, exactly. And so this ruler basically realizes that she sees him for who he is, and she knows it. And so he tries to bribe this woman, this like peasant woman, and he offers her some coins, and she throws it back at him and he he's asking her to forget that she saw him and she says forget i cannot and i must not forget remembering is the essence of what i am the price of my forgetting great sir is more than you can imagine let alone pay 
And that is the parable she says to this graduating class of like yeah. middle schoolers. She's like, if you figure it out, you can have a pizza on me. <laughs> right. Classic pension uh, pizza. <laughs> but later on, like in talking with Maxine, the main character, March Kelleher says in sort of referring to this, she's talking about the terminal truth about the U.S. government worse than anything you can imagine, which I think my read is just the truth about it is that it would do 9-11 or has done any number of prior horrific things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he makes a couple references throughout the novel almost on a um, kind of a spiritual level. I think uh, maybe March says after 9-11 that they were tithing back to the dark gods of capitalism and said, you have to like, right. you have to, you have to like spend money to make money or something like that. And I think earlier talks about like a dark force that is, let me see. Oh yeah. What I, what I see is a lot of innocent people making these deals with the satanic forces for money way out of scale to anything they're used to. And there's a point where it all rolls in on them and they go under and sometimes they mm-hmm. don't come back up. And then I think, uh, let me see. Oh yeah. Suppose the ruler isn't a person at all. I think this is referencing the parable. Suppose the ruler isn't right. a person at all, but a soulless force so powerful that, you know, blah, blah, blah. It can basically, uh, operate unseen and like have its way so i mean he's almost uh getting into like the real i guess bleeding edge of 9-11 conspiracy territory uh sk bain's the most dangerous book in the world 9-11 is mass ritual which like is a really interesting like analysis of the events of 9-11 i can't say that i literally like believe everything he says it's really like an amalgamation of these like coincidences but there is a kind of ritualistic element to that i feel like he's kind of gesturing at sometimes that this was kind of like a dark money ritual that uh like to bring down to inaugurate a new aeon basically the two towers become one and all that stuff that that's kind of what i was getting at at the beginning of this which is that like if you have a theme of america that is suddenly it's it's hegemonic throughout the 90s we won this we won the cold war Mm -hmm. and now we're going to funnel all that back into tech profits and um innovation and all this well it just goes bust it's not going to work well as a a, a, from a narrative point of view in the same way that like narratively speaking it made sense that donald trump would win the 2016 election it was narratively uh proper that something like 9-11 would then happen that it would have to happen because the, because all the myths and tor- stories we told ourselves about ourselves were suddenly untrue yeah. and and that that is the kind of space that the book takes place in and so then 911 happens and then you can reassemble all those same forces and deploy all of the uh, tech and surveillance and everything mm-hmm. towards actually fascist ends um, on on new terms uh, war and you know etc uh, police state, everything we're seeing now. I mean, I don't know. It just it makes narrative sense, and yes, as, so as mass ritual would make sense. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying at the very beginning of this. Like you watch those videos, and it's just like, if even if it wasn't literally mass ritual, that is the effect that it had. If yeah. you watch the video, especially from the the one that I was referencing, where they're down. The building starts falling. You can feel the adrenaline and the shock and awe from people as they're like, "Oh my fucking god!" Like this is—I mean, it's—it it, it's it just blew everybody's mind. Was, 
It blew yeah. everybody's and mind. It, if you watch yeah. this, if you watch the video, like the the fucking uh, the hole in the in the the North Tower just looks like an eye at points. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it looks like just it, it looks like a face almost. Like as the fires start to you like remember there was that on, smoke like, that people thought was like the face of the devil, you know, rising yeah. out of it and stuff. <laughs> and yeah, it's demonic. I mean. Yeah, no, there is such a vibe. And also, it was one of the first events where uh, I know, like, other people have, like, mentioned this on Twitter before about how, like, the mass PTSD that was delivered to everybody watching it on television, in America at least, which is, like, millions of people, you know, basically uh-huh. throughout that day, a lot of them watching live as this these buildings came down, that everybody was, like, probably got, like, a form of PTSD from it, which you might kind of think like oh that can't be inflicted on a screen but i remember reading uh researching about drone operators in the air force years ago and they actually had the highest rates of ptsd in the entire military higher than combat Mm -hmm. troops on the ground because of the intimacy of having to kill people and then fly around and like zoom in on them and do like an after action report and but or like or not just flying like you know like by the you know seat of your pants like over and dropping some bomb and flying away but hovering over like a house for weeks and watching a guy play with his family and then one day you get a call that you got to blow him up or something like that and so the the idea that ptsd can be inflicted like via a screen is actually very real and i think like 9-11 is one of those experiences that um that that affected you know pretty much most people that were like alive that day that experienced it so this kind of psychic aftershock and consequences of that um were tremendous and now we see it with all kinds of little events that happen whether it's like i don't know like uh any kind of video it's funny they, they tend not to show like atrocity footage like that anymore but you know you well, can well i don't know for it's, people it's, like people that are Nancy Pelosi fans, like January sixth was literally yeah. as traumatic. You're right, as and they play that shit just like the towers <laughs> collapsing, like for a year. They play it on repeat. If you go on right. CNN or MSNBC, right. they talk about like the big lie, the big lie, and they just show yeah. like, the same footage of like a bunch of like QAnon guys like stumbling over right. each other to go. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. That's the thing. Like I remember reading a whole bunch about the the weather underground. You know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the sort of new left adventurist terrorist <laughs> organization. Yeah. Right. And basically when they wanted it to stop, they just got every media outlet to just stop reporting on bombings because they were doing like a bombing a week for like years and every bombing would get all this press. Mm-hmm. And then they just suddenly stopped reporting on it. And then not very long after the group folded because they had nothing to work with, nothing. Right. And so they know how these images actually work with people. And the choice to show the towers being hit and collapsing over and over for months and months Mm -hmm. was an intentional choice. They wanted to traumatize people because they chose not to do it at other times. 
it's weird. They even point that out in the book. Like, Maxine mentions that. Like, she mentions the fact that they keep playing it over and over. And mm-hmm. then her sister, Brooke, like, accuses her of being, like, a traitor. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Just by mentioning the fact. It's it just it's this interesting, like, kind of glimpse into the psychology of Americans where it's just like, I want to be hurt as much as possible. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need to be traumatized. That's like, so true. That, just... that was so the vibe, like, back then. It was like, what the fuck mm-hmm. do you mean they shouldn't show it? Like, we need to see what they yeah. did. I remember when, like, Bill Maher had, like, the temerity to say that, like, the hijackers weren't cowards and, like, his show got immediately yeah. canceled. <laughs> and, like, I mean, shit was real back then. By the way, just fun little fact. Do you know who the president of CNN was on 9-11 and after 9-11? Uh-uh. It was the f- uh, former Disney TV uh, head of uh, TV, uh, sorry, the Disney Channel, and the former head of the Digital Entertainment Network, David Newman, was oh, the head of CNN on 9-11. You should probably remind people what the Digital Entertainment Network was. Okay, well, it kind, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of ties into this world of, like, the first dot-com boom. Um, we did an yeah. episode on it way back. I, I stumbled into this, like, story of this group years ago because they're still kind of with us. But basically, it was a, like, web TV startup in L.A. in the late 90s by this, mainly by this this kind of shadowy early dot-com millionaire named Mark Collins Rector and a teenage <laughs> child actor named Brock Pierce, who is still very much around. Um, he's a, a Bitcoin billionaire nowadays, uh, mm-hmm. but basically ran for president. Yeah, ran for president. Um, very sus individual, and so him and also another young guy that was like uh, Mark Collins' director's boyfriend, Chad Shackley. No relation to Ted Shackley, as far as I know, but you never know. <laughs> uh-huh. They started this like big network, very much like Josh Harris's pseudo in New York. Um, it, where it was basically going to be kind of like this MTV, but like online. And it was going to have, they produced all their own content kind of in-house. And they, it, it was a similar thing to why Pseudo didn't make money. Is it like the they came too early and the bandwidth wasn't there to actually like broadcast like shows like you would on YouTube. But they managed to, they managed to like raise I think like over a hundred million dollars from investors, including people like Michael Huffington, David Geffen, a lot of big Hollywood people. But then it came out closer to the, the dot com bust that at their mansion in Encino, they were having like pubescent aged boys come over for these parties where they would be like drugged or plied with drugs like cocaine, ecstasy, alcohol, and then they would be sexually abused by Mark Collins Rector and his wealthy investor friends, uh, most of whom like have not never been named like explicitly. But there was a lawsuit from one guy, uh, I think Daniel Egan in 2014. He's in the documentary Open Secret, which is like the only thing that kind of covers this story. It's been kind of memory yeah. hold. But he sued David Newman, the guy who was the, the, the president of DEN and then became the president of CNN in early 2001 he sued him as one of the molesters now that case got like blown out of court and there was all kinds of bullshit and like you know the la news and they ended up kind of like exposing quote unquote exposing him as like a liar just trying to grift for money but you know another person he uh accused who's like involved with den was gary goddard who also denied it and was quote cleared but then a few years later anthony edwards goose from top gun like penned a big article about how he was molested by gary goddard as a kid 
and so now that guy's kind of canceled. But so I would lean on the side of like there was some real dark shit going on at Den, basically. And then you know <laughs> yeah. Brock Pierce, like that he and Mark Collins Rector like fled to Marbella, Spain, where they were arrested by Interpol in two thousand three with a stash full of guns and child porn. And then miraculously, Brock Pierce. Uh, kind of got let off the hook. Mark Holland's rector had to go to jail for a couple years for a child sex trafficking charge he caught in the U.S. And And then he went on to be a a Navy contractor building underwater drones uh, in Florida for the U.S. Navy after he got out of jail for being a pedophile con man billionaire. Uh, And uh, Marbella links to a bunch of European pedophile networks as well. Yeah, and organized crime as well. A lot of Saudi, uh, a lot of Saudis up there. And it's really, you could go in a million different directions. Then Brock Pierce became the head of the Bitcoin Foundation in 2014. That's when I kind of got turned on to him. And I was like, why is this? This guy being made the face of Bitcoin, like what the fuck? And it was very eerie how, n- like, everyone was just like, "Oh, he said that wasn't a thing, and he wasn't involved in it. Like, it's not a big <laughs> deal. He's cool, and like, he promotes Bitcoin." That was when I really got turned off by like the crypto community, like their inability to recognize like why Brock Pierce was sus. <laughs> like was just yeah. kind of mind-blowing and now he's gone on to be like this big guy he's in puerto rico which i remember a couple yeah. years ago he tried to found like a kind of crypto colony there called puertopia which means like you know in in latin means boy utopia like puer Sound, is, is boy sounds like boy town i mean boy yeah, yeah. A, a real boy's town yeah. if you will mm-hmm. i think he eventually changed it after people got mad at him for like that that name but who knows what he's doing down there in puerto rico he's also a big burner he's obsessed with burning man and like ayahuasca yeah. and dmt and like all that kind of i mean you see it in like his presidential ads he's like he he's got this real hippie weird like california cult vibe and you know child actor he played first kid in a disney movie so he Mm. i don't know that has like a white house kind of politics like connection to it and there's just so much like creeping it and there's been allegations that a lot of his moves in the business world like are basically still being controlled by mark collins rector he's still out there uh and like brock brock pierce is kind of his face um, for interview, so like Mark Collins Rector is like such a man of mystery. Like you don't really know what what country he's in right now. Uh, like he he's getting Navy contracts. It's just it's very Pynchon esque, you could say. But yeah, just do. I didn't know that there was a CNN nine eleven connection there. I will say, yeah, that episode, um, very creepy parts of it, especially like the TV show they made, oh, um, Chad's World, but. I was fucking losing it about Buffalo J.A. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, that was, I, that, was I found so, that. I, I, or I didn't find it, but, like, somebody on the Bitcoin forums found it, and I went and checked in, and I started looking into it, and that was one of the creepiest things I found in my life. And I, to this day, I'm, like, convinced that, it like, it was them. It was them on, like, semi-private Facebook accounts. Yeah. But I, don't, I can't was. make sense of it. They were in Marbella, Spain, or Mark Rector was, and... Uh, they were just making these jokes about Buffalo J.A. and and typing in Spanish laughing, like, ja, 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 ja. Ja, ja, And just, ja. like, LOL, LOL, LOL. Like, all the, like, weird accounts that, like, there was a version of Brock, Brock Pierce. There was a version of Chad Shackley. There was, like, a, 
a CBS like business radio host in LA that was also like one of the accounts. There was like some kind of like actor guy that had like a green NGO that like interfaced with Hollywood. Like he who looks kind of like a spy. Like just and then a couple guys that had like DEA like logos as their banner or like Interpol yeah. or like uh, FBI kind of shit. And it was like, <clears throat> didn't Interpol arrest you guys? Like what the fuck is going on in Marbella right now? It, it is dark. totally pinch. It's totally pinching esque um, for multiple reasons. Um, one of which is that, like, yeah, you have the virtual representation of them, which adds this very eerie aura. That's what I mean. There are a few parts of this book we didn't even fucking get into, like the Montauk project. Oh yeah, but there are yeah. part. Of, there are parts <laughs> of this book that are so fucking eerie, and I think honestly, one of the eeriest ones is like her running into like dead people in Deep Archer. And it's just, I don't know, it's kind of this interesting thing. It mentions it early on in the book, but, like, the word avatar is, um, I think it's another word for incarnation. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, I think this is another big pension theme. It's mentioned a lot in Inherent Vice, but zombies and the yeah. undead. Oh, yeah. And um, so, I mean, there's this, uh, there's this always this issue. 49, too. Yeah. Right, totally, totally. With, the, with Beatlemania, it's oh, <laughs> right to that. Yeah. See, how did and he know that? There's also, t- <laughs> there's also exactly. TV like connected to the zombies, the tube heads, and like the right. idea that watching TV turns you into a zombie. Like, it sounds like such a stupid like high school level analysis until you like realize that there's like real science about like brainwave patterns with certain alpha beta waves yeah like you you enter like a passive state when you're like watching television and you're more susceptible more suggestible Mm -hmm. yeah i mean he's hinting that stuff and the montauk project i did not expect that to pop up in this and it's like Mm -hmm. i know he's like dabbled in like the woo woo stuff kind of before i mean i'm like somewhat familiar with like the montauk project as like a category of conspiracy lore like out of montauk like these weird kind of like paranormal adjacent experiments and you know he says something kind of disturbing that like mk ultra is a cover story for what they're really doing yeah. which is sending like abducting children who i guess have the right you know attributes and then subjecting them to basically like project monarch like ritual uh-huh. abuse to like break their personalities and like give them did and turn them into like the perfect like stone cold killer agents and then send them back in time back in time to edit history in ways that are like beneficial to whatever this force Here's the is thing. that okay that he didn't invent that theory that theory is one of like the most fringe mk ultra theories is that it also involves time oh okay which means that thomas pynchon is familiar with not just like mk ultra according to like netflix he also knows about candy jones because there's a candy jones connection yeah but he also knows the freaking weird stuff he knows the far out crazy theories about mk ultra because he's talking about him yeah crazy yeah yeah and um, then he he talks about in with Montauk. He talks about um, if you were doing something in secret and didn't want the attention, what better way to have it ridiculed <laughs> and dismissed than in bringing in a few Californian Cal- elements? Yep, right. Get that yep. Esalen yep. crowd in there, exactly. just woo it up and make it just seem ridiculous. Code. Yeah, shit code it. I mean, there's yeah. see so much of that, you know. 
And mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm like getting on board with like the time travel no, assassin not theory. Me, me neither, but, but but I mean I do I do wonder about Montauk. It's also interesting that uh, the Montauk project was. I remember there was a lawsuit a few years ago because everyone's favorite uh, limited hangout MK show, Stranger Things was allegedly according yeah. to a lawsuit based on somebody else's script called the montauk project yeah. and was supposed to take place on montauk and then the duffer brothers allegedly uh heard about like they he pitched it kind of to them at like a party and then they went off and like changed a few things set it to indiana and like mm-hmm. went off which, and got rid yeah. of it yeah right yeah. which is sus in its own way <laughs> but uh but yeah i always remembered that that like oh this show about like you know uh, gifted children kind of like government slaves that have psychic powers was really sourced out of like the montauk lore uh more yeah. than anything else so it's still with us in a very like pop culture uh sanitized kind of way it's still out there the um they even mentioned um twa flight 800 which was like shot down yeah sort of close to montauk there right it was like shot down like over long east long island or something i've been meaning to look back into that i I, i'm hearing a lot i say people say i say uh, shot down. yeah i'm I'm hearing a lot of people (laughs) say these days uh i I think i heard ed opperman talk about it recently and like he's saying like there's no there's no like it, it was shot down. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was shot down. Like, right. it, there's so much uh, obvious evidence, but it also it was happening at a time where Americans were kind of, like, checked out. And, like, I don't know, maybe the OJ trial or uh, the Clinton-Lewinsky trial was, like, more exciting to pay attention to. So it just kind of got kind of dropped. Like, I, I don't know if they ever, like, had a definitive, like, report of, like, how the plane, like, blew up in the middle of the air. But there seems to be, I don't know, a lot of people seem to think, based on the evidence, that... It was like a stinger missile or something that shot the plane. I don't know by by whom though, or by what. Which the stinger missile that ties into the wind dust stinger missile yeah. subplot. The um, yeah. that's actually an interesting thing. Um, the so a big part of the plot in this book is a video sent to Maxine that Reg supposedly films. I don't think he ever even actually admits to it or not, but. Um, that was a, a recurring question in my mind. Like, is Reg in on this, or does he know he's in on it? Is he being put up to, or sort of in the same way that Doc was like put up by Bigfoot into like going through this whole thing? Like, is Reg also being played? But like, so ostensibly he sh- he shoots a video on top of this very creepy building, the Deseret, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, which is an interesting building and word in and of itself. But like. It's a scheme, basically. Uh, it's got two men with like a stinger missile and um, someone with a sniper rifle. And I didn't even think about this, but like as I was reading it, I was like, I wonder if there's is this based in anything real? Is this based in any kind of lore about 9/11 or what? And I couldn't come up with anything um, really specific. But one of the things latched onto by like the Jersey Girls in that in that 9/11 Press for Truth documentary is that the night before 9/11, when Bush was in Sarasota, Florida, they had like upped the security detail on him, and on top of the roof of the building he was in, they put sniper rifles and men with stinger missiles. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's Pynchon's kind of like nod to that. If it's him sort of I like, vaguely you know, remember I, that I don't know. being a thing. Also weird that he was in Sarasota, right? Where like all the hijackers like trained to be pilots. Where they trained, yeah. Uh, okay. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. I do think there's a through line to like maybe implying that, you know, 
TWA was shot down by a Stinger missile. Right. That maybe Windust was going to do that again, or that someone, you know, like. Right. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, it, it ends up being played in the novel, basically, that, well, this video is kind of like a, a misdirection of sorts. Like, it, it it's getting them to think that this is what's going to happen soon, is that somebody's going to shoot right. down a Stinger missile. But then it, I, I almost got a little confused in the, the topsy-turvy explanation of, like, what really was supposed to happen. I think Windust kind of explains it, but it wasn't supposed to be, like, if the hijackers like lost their nerve or something they right. were ordered to shoot down the plane and as an, an insurance policy wondering. they had a sniper on another rooftop ready to kill them if if they lost their if they nerve. lost their nerve yeah. to shoot down which almost begs the question like if you shoot them then who's going to shoot the stinger missile like <laughs> like yeah. you gotta right. have like an alternate there or something but uh but, but the, like yeah it just proves that something was going on in New York City before 9-11, like, why on earth is there a Stinger missile on a roof? Yeah. Like, at a minimum, yeah. it shows something, and it gets Maxine on this whole, you know, voyage, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it ends up kind of like, yeah, it's like the, the, the nature of the threat that emerges is, like, slightly different. Or, I don't know, maybe yeah. they, they stood down or they weren't there. I'm not sure, but... And I think they say that the video is what got Windust killed, and then you can have, they do you have say to, that, like, yeah. interpret why that would get him killed, and you have to, like, I don't know, I could be... Max, Maxine speculates that it's because, if I remember correctly, she speculates that it's because he was supposed to be running security, mm-hmm. and the video was proof that he let someone um, buy, like, someone got through his net of security to film this when they shouldn't have, and mm-hmm. so he was killed for that, but... I, 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 there's so many questions there that I, I like your interpretation better, Jimmy. I think it makes more sense Yeah. that, um, that he was, you know, going after the various, uh, you know, trying, maybe trying to stop this. There was an, in, there was a struggle within the elite here, mm-hmm. the, it, within the power structure of, you know, people trying to, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, not, not for valorous reasons or anything, not because they're heroes or anything, but like we established earlier, they have their own arbitrarily designed or drawn lines mm-hmm. beyond which they don't want to cross, um, even though they are just as implicated in evil in, in other ways. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you could say that about a lot of the people that, I don't know, there, there's certain people like in that Looming Tower miniseries, like Michael Schur, my favorite uh, QAnon right. podcaster, um, who is uh, portrayed by Peter Sarsgaard in that Um you know, it, he's kind of portrayed as being like a little bit of a psycho, but kind of sincere in his desire to like kill Osama bin Laden, like now, like just go blow him up, like just kill him, like what are you doing? And uh, and then you know his the woman who had become his wife, Alfreda Bukowski, who was also like the inspiration for Zero Dark Thirty, that wonderful propaganda film. You know, she's portrayed a little more negatively because she's the one that withheld all the information from the FBI. So, and it, it kind of hints that they were maybe trying to turn these Al-Qaeda people into, like, CIA assets, and that's why they didn't want like, the FBI, like, stomping in and arresting them. But I don't quite, like, buy that. At a certain point, like, they're hanging out in San Diego, like, they're renting a place from an FBI informant who also rented out a mansion to the Heaven's Gate cult when they killed themselves, and they're getting wired money from Prince Bandar's wife. Like, at what point? Right. Like, I I think that. So I think maybe there was some of the some of the FBI people embedded in that office, or maybe John O'Neill were 
like to some degree sincerely whatever else their politics or whatever maybe it's just their their old-fashioned cop code or whatever you know or maybe it was their own just like sense of like i want to catch the bad guy like you know this is uh this is my identity this is who i am like i i make the big i make the big bust or whatever and they were prevented from doing so and then at least one of them i'm willing to put even odds on like the fact that john o'neill was set up to be potentially murdered by like giving him that job in the world trade center a week before so again like not a direct parallel to wind dust but kind of he also yeah. he also like cheats on his yeah. wife and fucks a lot in the looming tower that was another thing that like jumped out at me like he's there's a lot of shots of like jeff daniels's ass like you know like so there's a certain uh, synchronicity with that as well nobody in our government at least and i don't think the prior government could envision flying airplanes into buildings and clearly uh, something yesterday took place in New York that was not foreseen, that we had no specific specific information about. No specific threat involving uh, really a domestic operation or involving uh, what happened, obviously, uh, the city's uh, airliner and so forth. There uh, were no warning signs that I'm aware of that would indicate this type of operation in the country. Are are the people who lost loved ones at 9-11 like the families of guys who were lost in Vietnam? They just can't get over it. Sometimes people try to become crusaders because they they can't deal with reality. The families, I think, have to understand that it's, it's virtually impossible to conceive of any way in which these attacks could have been stopped, even had the best things happened. Why are you and the Vice President insisting on appearing together before the 9-11 Commission? Because the 9-11 Commission wants to ask us questions. That's why we're meeting, and I look forward to meeting with them and answering their questions. Uh, Why you're appearing together rather than separately, which was their request? Because it's a good chance for both of us to answer questions that the 9-11 Commission is uh, looking forward to asking us, and I'm looking forward to answering them. Let's see. So, all right. Well, I think we can probably start wrapping up. Um, you know, I think I pretty much covered all the things that I had on my list. Um, I did want to say that, like, it does seem like in the last 30 or 40 pages, there kind of arises this question of, like, what's real and what's not. And, like, Maxine kind of says that this is, it seems like it's partially a result of 9-11, but it's also a result of spending so much time in deep archer and she has this what she calls virtuality creep in which she's not entirely sure what is the real world and what's not and there are a few examples she sees like a you know like a lid on a cup rolling down the the, you know what i mean like it just seems like things are programmed into her life um and i think i don't know it's an interesting kind of distinction um it feels like uh you know, one of the things that was going around a lot like five years ago, even recently is like three or four years ago, people would be like, Twitter's not real life. Like, you know, Internet's not real life and all this. But I, it kind of feels like Pynchon is asking a larger question, which is like, isn't it kind of interesting that they we have this whole distinction in general now that we even have like do you think two or three hundred years ago people were asking is this real life you know what i'm saying (laughs) i don't know maybe they were maybe they weren't it just feels like kind of a recent thing where all of us are like 
what's real and what's not <laughs> i don't know um so i don't know what do you guys think is that i don't know i don't know I, what epistemologies people were working with 300 years ago but i think you're probably right that people 300 years ago or maybe they were talking about it in different terms or i don't know maybe they, i think maybe they thought about this life being kind of this consciousness this world being stable and perhaps you moved on to the next one when you died like the belief in that it's weird like the belief in an afterlife um was more pervasive i mean it's still strong in a lot of ways today but somewhat less so in like the secular west but now it's like we have like this afterlife but it, like now overlaid on top of our life that we can right. kind of jump back and forth across a line but then that line gets blurry it's also interesting have you guys read anything about like the metaverse that they're talking about all of a sudden i guess like facebook and all the social media companies are getting really jazzed it might be just another like bullshit hustle idea Is it the virtual reality it's kind of thing? a virtual reality it's kind of like it sounds so much like when i was reading about deep archer in the novel it sounds so much like how they're describing like the metaverse now where it is going to kind of be like this graphical like 3d immersive representation like a, a real kind of immersive second life or deep mm. archer where you can go in and interact with people and kind of was was zuckerberg talking about it recently? i think he was i think he was yeah yes. i think i saw yeah. that i rem they did like a they, they did a, they sort of a rollout of it mm -hmm. or like a press conference about yeah, it. yeah i think it's it still very much in beta like, um yeah. but but yeah. this is a dream that i think people and you know people are already saying like oh they just want to like shuttle us into like their virtual prison <laughs> you know to uh yeah. but also is it the i don't like know they were yeah. kind of using it in a way to like maybe even fire people through it wow. or hire oh people through it and conduct interviews so basically you yeah, see you... the creep right i mean right that, that's some creep right there to the point where i mean we're already in like a kind of a beta mode of that where we've normalized like throughout the course of the pandemic like again there's just like a vague dracularity of like the like the 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 direction of technological progress like wanted this deeply to happen something that would get us inside so that we all had to meet like completely interact through screens that to, like make offices like a thing of the past and all these other things like everything's mediated by like the device the black obsidian mirror is you know uh, we're all sucked in closer to it now but now i mean i don't know i guess maybe it's like dialectical you think about it going and going both ways like is the cyber prison like extending out into our meat space you know and taking uh colonizing i think in one way or another it seems to be colonizing more and more of our lives and our consciousness so yeah i don't know yeah. i think it's an interesting thing it, he plays with like this ain't gonna stop it, it even presents itself in inherent vice anyways uh as, i think it's fritz he says like you know the computer arpanet is like psychedelics and like Stuart brand and these people said that too and john perry barlow and everyone they frequently compared the internet and information technology and communications technology to psychedelics to this idea of being able to share information and cybernetics you know we're all linked in a, in a way and, and that people can be controlled and explained by their behaviors and that like some there's some emergent property that can kind of like lead to a better you know human good or something like that but it's it's actually controlling um yeah. and i think that's kind of what pinch saying what were you gonna say jimmy so another theme that i think ties to this is that there's they there's a bar in the novel called eternal Se september mm. Right. And yeah. eternal September in like nerd culture was like when um, when the only people on the Internet were on campuses 
every year new college students would show up in like August and by September they were on the internet and they were being obnoxious and so September was like the month and by October things would normalize and then it was for a couple of years it was like that and then after a certain point I think people say when AOL got rolled out mm. they said it was just eternal September forever it was nothing but noobs and obnoxious people and the internet was basically gentrified mm. and in deep archer after 9-11 partially because of the random numbers thing basically deep archer got filled with just normal people but also just like ads it became garish ugly yeah and basically <laughs> like pensions drawing a through line to colonization and gentrification are really just the similar phenomenon just manifesting yeah. in different ways totally and i think that the internet like itself it ends up being a form of colonization like that like it theoretically could have been emancipatory but it definitely isn't yeah totally but because yeah i think i think you wrote that in your notes because like if the same people that are building mm -hmm. it are the same people that have built all the past systems that they've monopolized and privatized. How could you expect any different outcome of like, this is mm -hmm. only going to go in one direction. It's not going to yeah. like violate the laws of, uh, I guess, you know, capitalist dynamics as we, uh, know them. I'd say the only thing that's maybe too optimistic in this novel, though, I think it's appropriate for the characters and the time is that he, he often references late capitalism and like my <laughs> pessimistic belief is that unfortunately uh, it's not as late as maybe people in the late nineties like thought it was like, it's got some more yeah, right. dark steam in the engine and totally. it's uh, it's got some notions for us. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, it does seem like one of the things about reading this book is that um, over the course of the book, you know, nine 11 is coming, mm. but it's just, it's just one of the books that like, it makes so much sense when it does come I just wanted to s point this out and we can close out here in just a second but did you guys pick up on the Benford's Law thing? Yeah. Oh, remind me what that was. I, I do remember. <laughs> he mentions it right at the very beginning and, and then, I mean, he might mention it maybe one other time but like he kind of just drops it but it's fascinating and I think he's kind of trying to, um, so I'll just read what Benford's Law is, and it's fucking crazy that he puts it in a book about 9-11, but, like, your sirens go off immediately. Uh -huh. um, it's called the Newcomb Benf also called the Newcomb-Benford Law. The Law of Anomalous Numbers, or the First Digit Law, is an observation about the frequency distribution of leading digits in many real-life sets of numerical data. The law states that in many naturally occurring collections of numbers, the leading digit is likely to be small. In sets that obey the number, the number 1 appears as the leading significant digit about 30% of the time, while 9 appears as the leading significant digit less than 5% of the time. If the digits were distributed uniformly, they would each occur about 11.1% of the time. So you've got 9-11 uh, right there. 11. Yeah. So, uh, like, so 9 is the least common. Uh, 1 is the most. 9 is the least and, common. Uh, do you think that has right. something to do with the fact that he keeps writing September 11th as 11 September, the way a European would? 11 September. Uh, almost right. putting Probably, the 1, 1 yeah. first as if, like, this is, I don't know, like, has something to do with that, that law of, I, think it's, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think he's also like, sh sh I think he's also trying to point out the kind of like 
I mean, Pynchon, like his numerology, like sometimes he'll get into it, I feel like, but this is a kind of interesting numerology where there is a kind of like statistical or mathematical thing behind it where he's basically saying that like, all things considered, the most likely time for 9-11 would have been, like, January. <laughs> but, like, what are the fucking odds wow. that it's 9-11, and also it's this number that is, you know, 911 has all these other numerological... I know. And sig- also, you know, you have 9-11 like- in Chile, and as Dave Lemery loves to point out, because he kind of sees the Underground Reich behind everything, that actually if you <laughs> read 9-11 the way Pynchon writes it, 11 September, 11-9... I believe is the anniversary of the Nazi beer hall push. Oh wow, that's fucking crazy. You know, and then so if you think about then in the Western Hemisphere, there are these two 9/11s that maybe had some like Nazi, some deep Nazi connections to overthrow Allende and then do 9/11. But if you read it from a European side, it's like hiding in in plain sight. You know, totally. Conversion, Mm -hmm. right? Well, and I think he's pointing that out, like, that it is there in plain sight the whole time. It feels like it anyways. And, and like, the, the, the characters themselves don't really notice it. Um, but, again, that's kind of an, another interesting thing he's done here. It's just, like, dropped it right down in the middle of these characters' lives. And, like, this happens in all of his books. Like, especially, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of Inherent Vice. But, like, you know, people that are just... Some of them are, you know, smoking weed all the time. But it's just like, how the fuck do you make sense of any of this? Sometimes you don't, and things just push you along till like, you're forced to make sense of it. But yeah, I don't know. he seems to have a habit of, I mean, I haven't read all of his novels, but of, like, giving his kind of main protagonist, like, some small kind of consolation or peace that, like we said earlier, of, like, a kind of confirmation of, like, the good side of humanity, like, a, a tiny victory, and then an acknowledgement, usually from confronting like uh, some kind of evil waspy Crocker Fenway character, that like they're never gonna. It will destroy them if they relentlessly pursue this any further. And so they learn to kind of accept with like more knowledge than they started out with, and more awareness of like more almost like gnosis, if you will, of how the world actually works. But being somewhat at peace to like not go on that like quixotic uh, death. Uh, you know, suicide mission, which, you know, right. no one person basically, uh, I think, which is realistic, I think, in a way. It's like, and it, it, I, in a way, it was kind of like mirrors his role as a novelist that, like, look, man, like, I can't write a novel that's going to, like, 9-11 pill everybody about, like, the ruling right. class and make them realize, like, capitalism is evil, it's a death cult, and that you should overthrow it and all this other stuff. But I can leave these clues for you. It's like, that's as much as I can do. And a lot of his characters kind of have that, too. It's like, all right, I'm going to get Coy Harlingen out. I'm going to reunite, like, Talos and March, you know, mother and daughter. And which like like leaving those leaving like really profound truths hidden in a puzzle. That's something that Vladimir Nabokov did. And Pynchon took a class from Vladimir Nabokov really at Cornell. Oh, I didn't know that. And their literature, although arguably pretty dissimilar in terms of politics, is very artistically similar, I would argue, in that particular respect. Yeah, Nabokov, um, wasn't his whole family, were they driven out in the Bolshevik Revolution? Uh, Yep. Nabokov was, (laughs) 
<laughs> a he bitter bastard. Came here for freedom. End. Yeah, yeah. He came here for freedom. <laughs> Just like the gangsters uh, in, in, you know, Bleeding Edge. Uh, you know, the totally. old mafia types, like, finally got their day in the sun, you know, <laughs> out in Brighton Beach and elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, um, so, I don't know. Any closing thoughts, guys? I mean, I feel like we've pretty thoroughly... Uh, you know, poured over this book. Um, I don't know. It, it's been it's been very helpful for me, anyways. And um, like I, like we were saying earlier, there there are some like sort of there's consolation to take here. I mean, like he's a novelist, so it's like yeah, you're right. He can't give you the the full you know the full manual on everything, tell you how to live your lives, how to change the world, like all the information on everything, but like point you in the right direction and that like you yourself will change in the process of discovering these things. And that's what, I think that's ultimately what he's working with here. He's not under any illusions that like, I'm just going to tell you something and you're just going to believe it. It's like, no, like if you work for something, if you actually like, um, you know, embed yourself, um, not just in the story, but in other, the lives of other people and their um, journey towards finding truth, then that's how we kind of come to a collective sort of awakening and maybe can try to change things. Um, I don't know. That's my own optimistic reading on his work. And um, maybe the next book he puts out will just completely uh, prove me wrong. And, you know, maybe it'll be just completely, you know, be everything opposite of what I just said. But uh, that to me seems like a kind of, I don't know, summary of, of the materials he's working with in the larger agenda he's pushing towards. Yeah, I'll, I'll just double down on your optimism uh, for Pynchon and say that, like, he's one of the very few authors that you know, is still with us or in contemporary times that uh, gives me a kind of like hope for um, literature and art in general and its ability to shape consciousness in a way that is like productive and illuminating to people uh, and not just basically like lead them down like, I don't know, either be cheap entertainment or like psyop you in all these like subtle ways into, you know, I don't know, just having like a... uh, normie mindset about uh about our own history and also that you can like you can use i don't know both the techniques of like literary fiction and also historical research and combine them in ways that are both like entertaining and i don't know yeah teach you something about the sort of subterranean realities of the world that we live in and also you know i think for the kind of the shitting and shit coding of like conspiracy theory in general, <clears throat> I think that Pynchon is a true champion of like the right to speculate <laughs> about conspiracies and how right. it can be absolutely compatible with like a left wing orientation in politics. And in fact, I don't I don't know if he would go this far, but I would that it may be actually like absolutely essential to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, like I mean, yeah. I was just looking at like a week or two ago i was reading about how on in 2007 fidel castro went on cuban state television and announced that it was now his conviction (laughs) that a cruise missile hit the pentagon and that everything about the 9-11 story was like a fucking lie i don't think he was like a no planer but he basically said they were brought down by controlled demo and he was very like nice to america after 9-11 like this is a horrible attack we'll send nurses to new york to help you and but but after a few years and watching how it all played out the old critical paranoid master 
himself, yeah. the Commandante. Yeah. Uh, he saw that shit, and you know, like so. I don't know if all these and constant vigilance paid off. Constant, isn't it interesting it that like did. all these people that actually manage to like kick out the capitalists and have their own country at least for a while, all seem to be pretty damn paranoid by like normal liberal <laughs> standards. Like maybe there's a reason for that. Like maybe you know when Che Guevara was in Guatemala and saw like. Alan Dulles like overthrow the reformist government for United Fruit like with this you know by the CIA like maybe that made him a little bit paranoid I don't know you know right. maybe people that saw Operation Condor or you know people in America that saw all this cocaine show up in the 80s you know it's like if people in the 80s said you know the CIA is bringing in all the crack like even if they don't have the exact details of it down they would have been more or less yeah. correct and starting from that assumption would have been yeah. a much better place to start than like i just don't know why all this like crack <laughs> is falling all over our neighborhood and every city around the country all at once right. so yeah i think that like he's I, I stand strong with his like counter mfa tradition of like writing about history is cool <laughs> and important and like being interested about the world is cool and uh you know I think it's a lot cooler than the Gen X pose that David Foster Wallace was trying to affect, you know, and I think it'll be yeah, with yeah. us a lot longer. I think people will get things out of like Pynchon's novels, like for decades to come. And it's trying to seek clarity about the Cold War era and this like Y2K era and stuff. So, yeah, I, I, that's uh, maybe it's optimistic, but you got to have some faith somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just probably add to that, like there's especially the characters Ernie and March, uh, both of them, I resonate on a spiritual level, like to, you know, just what March said, like remembering is the essence of what I am. The price of my forgetting is more than you can imagine. Like for anyone on the left, I think like we, all we have, all we have at the end of the day is a very long history, a long history of mostly betrayals and failures and some brief moments of victory and happiness, right? And I don't know about the rest of you, but like I got into left, left-wing politics through being into history. Mm -hmm. And yeah, anyone who seriously grapples with U.S. history and isn't rich, <laughs> anyone who grapples with U.S. history and is not in the upper class flirts with the same conclusions that Pynchon is referring to here. Pynchon might be one of the few rich people who, you know, dropped out. But regardless, the thing is, remembering the past is central to fighting and continuing. And like Stephen Dedalus says in the novel Ulysses, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. The only way we can escape this nightmare is to learn our history. And Pynchon, you know, is a strong defense of that. And that's, that's my piece. Beautifully yeah. put. Very beautifully put. Um, fellas, I really appreciate um, both of you coming on and to, to help me with this. Um, I would ask that you please humbly plug your own podcasts. Um, and I would ask that everybody go check them out because they're both very good. After you, Jimmy. Okay. Well, I have the show programmed to chill. And I do a lot of uh, history, a lot of business a lot of espionage. I cover a lot of those topics. And for instance, I did a pretty long series on who financed Hitler that I think teases out a lot of very interesting threads. I have another one coming up on <laughs> the German steel industry that goes in some interesting places. 
So basically, check it out. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely, sure. definitely check it out. Um, as for myself, um, most of what you can find is uh, is on Twitter. But uh, if you look up Subliminal Jihad, is uh, the podcast with my friend Khalid, and uh, we cover a lot of a uh, deep politics, kind of occult history, like history of intelligence activities, um, also arts and culture, and how this stuff kind of intersects and influences. Um, you know, like political economy and uh, and what could be, you know, denigratingly called conspiracy theory, but from a critical paranoid perspective. So, yeah, you can find us on we have a Patreon and we're also on SoundCloud, Apple and Spotify, um, etc. And yeah, we got some we got some interviews coming up this month. Um, love to have both of you guys on, uh, you know, ba- back on in Jimmy's case at some point. But uh, we should be having uh, some good JFK and RFK researchers and authors coming on soon to talk about you know sirhan talk about program to kill right and uh, you know getting paroled and uh some jfk stuff we're also going to talk about jonestown uh this coming Mm -hmm. month so uh yeah yeah check that out if you're into it and uh yeah thanks for having us on terrence this is this is fun very great yeah um well uh we'd love to do it again Mm -hmm. i'll try to find another topic for us (laughs) to uh to dig in um but uh once again thanks everybody and definitely go check out the book uh bleeding edge by thomas pension um and uh go check us out on patreon uh p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trillbilly workers party and um if that's everything i guess we'll see you on the other side of um the 20th anniversary of 9-11 hopefully no one does any uh anything weird at your um i'm going to a wedding on 9 11 um so i'm like really worried that maybe like one of the parents is going to be like my god like that beautiful day 20 years ago or whatever (laughs) inshallah they'll they'll be too drunk Uh, at that point Uh, hopefully right (laughs) right um well anyways thanks for listening everybody and we will see you next time peace It's here that Jeff and Craig launched Razorfish, which is now worth $4 billion. One of the most successful companies on the web. Successful at what? Good question. We've asked our clients to recontextualize their business. We've rec- recontextualized what it is to be a services business. You know, and there, there are people out there, such as myself, who have trouble with the word recontextualize. Tell me what you do in English. We provide services to companies to help them win. So do trucking firms. Absolutely, and absolutely. That's right, absolutely. But what is it you do? And our talent is to do a certain thing, whereas a trucking firm. But what is, what is it you do? We radically transform businesses to invent and reinvent them.